And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be. On this rotating globe, welcome to another edition on this Sunday night, November 6th, of The Other Side of Midnight, live. That magical time between dusk and dawn where, well, we're entering that period where every major news anchor, every columnist, every reporter, anybody monitoring anything going on in the uh, real 3D world is saying we are living in extraordinary times. And this time of night is still the king of the extraordinary because we cover things here that only somewhat later kind of leak into the mainstream. And I'm kind of hoping that we're going to be at the forefront, or as Buzz Aldrin said on that memorable morning, number one on the runway again. Because we're talking tonight not only about this latest congressional report, which technically is not a congressional report. It was mandated under law by the Congress, signed by the president, but it's actually coming from the intelligence community, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. So it's the ODNI report delivered to us courtesy of a, a uh, congressional bill. Um, this version, this latest iteration is really interesting for what it's telling us and even more so for what it's not telling us. And again, as we did like a week ago when Stephen was here, we're going to talk a lot about the next iteration, which is the 2023 National Defense uh, uh, Act, which is uh, the one where all the internal information, all those people that know where all the metaphorical bodies are buried and all the secret projects involving UFOs and UFOs technologies, they are going to be released. It's kind of like that old uh, uh, expression, you know, release the Kraken. And that could all happen in the foreseeable future within days or at the most two or three weeks, certainly by the end of the year, because what we're waiting on is, well, I'll tell you what, let's, let's wait till we get Stephen on and we're going to have Barbara and Stephen on together tonight from the top of the show. Uh, Georgia Lambert, our resident metaphysician, is going to join us in the third hour. But before we do any of that, let me give you a couple of news highlights. Um, again, uh, one week from tonight, literally one week from right now, plus maybe, what is it, uh, four minutes, the beginning of the official U.S. government return to the moon is supposed to theoretically begin with the launch of Artemis One, the big uh, moon rocket, the SLS, the Space Launch System, and it's Orion spacecraft. What a name, Orion. I mean, come on, all these years, all this symbology, and then they named the old damn spacecraft, Orion. Um, and it's going to be launched on a 25-day uh, journey to the moon into a long looping orbit for, you know, a couple, three times, and then back to Earth to ring out all the systems in an unperson configuration. Uh, that's Artemis 1. Artemis 2, which will be um, uh, next year, will have crew aboard. It will not land. It will go into lunar orbit, and it will conduct basically the flight with extraordinary permutations and advancements over the ancient 
and venerable Apollo 10, which was the precursor mission to the first Apollo landing on the moon, which was Apollo 11 in July of 1969, July 20th. Anyway, Artemis II will have crew aboard, first woman, uh, first person of color, perchance, um, Americans returning in physical form to the lunar environment for the first time in, well, you know, like almost 50 years, half a century. Did you ever think, did I ever think, that um, it would take so damn long? But it's that old expression from the Gallo Wine commercial, make no wine before it's time. And I know there are people with an earshot, <clears throat> I can see Steve wrinkling his eyebrows, who do not believe this is all on some kind of a ritual timetable. And I am firmly, totally committed to the model because the model is predictive. And we've predicted it over and over again that things cannot happen any old time. They happen when those that are in charge want them to happen. Remember FDR's classic statement made many, many decades ago in politics, there are no such things as coincidences. I mean, political decisions are decisions and they are enacted and carried out. And most people think, oh, that just kind of happened. No, if it happened politically, and of course the space program is intensely, overwhelmingly political, as well as technical, but primarily it was a political decision by Kennedy that set us on this journey on the new ocean, a metaphor that I really love. Um, so this all kind of gets underway literally a week now and 30 seconds from tonight, right now, if everything goes according to plan. Now, as you know, when you count down a big, big, big rocket that you have never flown before, which, of course, the uh, Artemis One SLS rocket has never flown. It's been test-fired on the ground, but it has not flown. Uh, many a slip, twixt the cup and the lip, as another cliche goes. So it could not maybe go off on time. There's a 90-minute launch window. It could be delayed. Uh, so what our plan is, is to obviously we'll be tracking this for hours ahead of the launch. So I will know when we come on the air, literally a week now and 30 seconds behind us, seven minutes, 30 seconds. Um, I'll know whether we're in the terminal count and it's proceeding normally or whether we're in a hold or whether we're going to go at all. So we'll know right at the top of the show uh, where where we are. And my plan is we're going to go live to the Cape. We'll go through the launch, through the various sequences, and I will uh, try to narrate what's going on and why it's going on, et cetera. And then we'll launch into a discussion as to why we should care. I mean, that's kind of like the overview of tonight's program, which we're going to get to momentarily. Because it's – remember what Lincoln said, with 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 people's acclamation and approbation, anything is possible – Without the people's support, nothing is possible. If we do this right, if we make clear what the real objectives of returning to the moon are, kind of in concert with the real objectives of the whole UFO, UAP investigation process, which we're going to spend a lot of time tonight discussing, then these two separate tracks can kind of meet at game's end. 
because they are very intimately related as uh, we will we will describe. And it's so interesting because I think, if I'm correct on this, that Stephen and I represent the two uh, longest serving, most venerable members of these two overlapping communities. The UFO extraterrestrials are running around and we need to open the doors and whatever and know what's going on group. And then me with the, there's incredible ancient ET artifacts surrounding us of which our history and humanity has been a part forever and ever and ever, which they're not letting us know about group. And those two groups have got to get together politically to create the forcing function on the body politic, on the legislature, on the administration, on the media. So we all kind of awaken to this much, much larger reality, this extraordinary, almost indescribable new world when this goes down that we're all going to be thrust into whether we want to or not. So which camp would you like to be in? The camp that doesn't know what's going to happen, and one day you wake up and there it is on you know, Fox and CNN and NBC, or would you like to have forewarning and in part be, be, a, be, a, be a part of the process of making sure the story comes out correctly, and that means that it's the truth as opposed to a carefully manufactured set of lies because of the end game the real winners of the war and we've been in in this war for all of my lifetime 70 plus years all of Stephen's lifetime which is somewhat shorter all of Barbara's lifetime we won't discuss how long but this is where it all matters this is where you know the you know what hits the rotating kitchen appliance because the real objective of the war has been to keep us from ever knowing there's more than this little reality. And if they lost that one, fallback position is to manufacture, to, to make us think that certain things are true when in fact they're not. And the future will depend on which vision of the truth, the real truth or the fake truth, we are then politically uh, encouraged, manipulated, uh, bludgeoned into following. So that's kind of the arc of the conversation tonight. Um, item number one is merely an update from NASA as to where they are with the Artemis One um, launch procedures. They rolled out the rocket and the spacecraft uh, a couple of days ago. It's sitting on the pad. It'll sit there for the next week and uh, hopefully literally a week and five minutes from right now, it will be in the air, in the air, flying on a mission which will change, if we have anything to say about it, the future of humankind. Item number two, um, what was really interesting is that as we discussed last Sunday night, a week ago, Monday, when you know business opened in Washington, there was supposed to be under law the release of this latest ODNI report mandated uh, by Congress and then to the general public. That's not exactly what happened. The uh, office of the director waited and waited and waited, and just kind of before midnight, they released a classified version to the committees. But nothing public. There's nothing, I don't think, and I'll check with Stephen momentarily, there's nothing public which has been uh, 
published or printed on either side of the Atlantic. Because what was really weird is I began getting information from sources that the British press and the French press had published stories, but there was nothing. And I still had not found anything in the American press, in the Times, in the Post, in the LA Times, uh, USA Today, none of the networks. Nobody is talking about the congressional, quote, UFO 2022 report, except for overseas. So without further ado, let me introduce my guest. Stephen Bassett is a political activist, disclosure advocate, and executive director of the Paradigm Research Group, which was founded by Stephen in 1996 to end the government-imposed embargo on the truth behind extraterrestrial-related Phenomena, And I'm hoping he means by that artifacts as well as creatures and beings and ships and technology and all that. Stephen has spoken to audiences around the world about the implications of disclosure, something he's going to expand upon tonight here. Um, Disclosure being defined now, remember, as the formal confirmation by heads of state of an extraterrestrial presence currently engaging the human race. Uh, He's lectured around the world on the political implications of this phenomenon and has given over 1,200, good grief, radio and television interviews. Um, Without further ado, Stephen Bassett, come on down. Hi, Richard. Howdy. uh, The the 20th century and 21st century from 1947 on to the present, I really wish I could live long enough so that much later in this century, uh, I don't know, maybe 2080 or something, I could I could watch historians have nervous breakdowns <laughs> trying to explain what in the hell happened here. What we were up right? to. What was going on? What were they thinking or not thinking? Okay, before yeah. we move on to where I, I want to introduce Barbara, because Barbara – um, actually, both my guests tonight, my first two guests, are political. Barbara has served in the White House under the Reagan administration, uh, and I'll get to the details momentarily. Stephen, and one of the things we're going to talk about tonight is Stephen, as far as I know, is the only individual in the history of the United States who has run for Congress as a representative in the lower house of the two-house parliament of the United States under the Constitution, who has run for Congress on the UFO platform. And was it once or twice? Uh, Not run. A lot of people have run, but I I was on the ballot. I was the first person on the ballot. There have been a couple since. Uh, along with the Democrat and the Republican and so forth. Plenty of people have run. You know, anybody can run. So it's just the first person, and I did it one time, and one was enough. Okay, okay. Let me go back to Barbara. So Barbara has served as a high-level government position, in positions, including as a White House policy analyst, special assistant to the president for domestic policy, director of the Attorney General's Law Review at the Department of Justice, and for more than a decade was the senior military affairs journalist at the Naval Postgraduate School, which is the premier science, technology, and national security affairs graduate research university 
of the Department of Defense. And there's so much more. She's involved up to her eyebrows as co-chairman of the Board of Investigative Research at the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, et cetera, et cetera. You can read her whole bio as you can read Stevens on their bio page on the other side of midnight. Barbara, welcome. Welcome back. Well, welcome back to you, too. <laughs> I, I would like to add something, a couple of things to my bio that um, we probably should have mentioned in last Sunday's show. And that is um, when I was in the West Wing of the White House in the first two years, of the good part of the first two years of the first Reagan administration. So from inauguration, January 20th, 81 until late 83. 83, actually, a little bit longer than that. Um, one of my portfolios was NASA and the space program. And we've never really had a show about what I did with that. Um, so um, some pretty historic things. So that's number one. And number two, I have run for Congress twice here in what's now, I believe, the 19th district of California, the Central Coast, Monterey Peninsula. Um, back then when I ran, Twice it was the 17th district, and with redistricting recently, it's now got a new number. Um, but I have run twice on, although not a UAP platform, I have run on a 9-11 truth platform. So, yes, we're uh, both Stephen and I are highly political. We both run for Congress, and um, we both are... Very, we're very, very close to Sarah McClendon, who was the senior White House correspondent. She was my political godmother when I was in Washington and after. And uh, we share, uh, as a very, very close longtime friend and colleague, the world-famous attorney Daniel Sheehan, who's a neighbor of mine. Hmm. Okay, so let me go back to Stephen. Um, I wanted to architect tonight so we talk about why we should care about any of this. There's been a lot of discussion in terms of these midterms about huge big picture items like democracy is at stake. That is not hyperbole. That's not overstatement. It really is. Uh, whether you vote for someone who you know believes in elections in the American system or you vote for somebody who doesn't, that will decide the future not only of this next two years, but who is actually elected president and confirmed, validated, certified as winning the election in 2024. So if you care about democracy, this is it. You got to vote for the right people, the wrong people, and you're stepping off the cliff into free fall where we have no idea where it's going, except it's going to go down. And the experiment, this extraordinary American experiment, I mean, it sounds so over the top to say it, but it literally could come to an end. Just think of Marjorie Taylor Greene as a committee chairman. Just to Not just that. She's the, talking with Trump about being his running mate. Insane. It's just insane. insane. So, uh, all, right, all right. Now, that's, that's one of the huge mainstream big picture items. But people seem to be focused on much shorter term, immediate concerns, like what they're paying for eggs, what they're paying for a gallon of gas, you know, very bread and, bread, and, bread and butter, kitchen table issues, very short term, because inflation will come down. But if you make the wrong decision about who you elect, democracy could end and it can never come back or it will come back long after you're dead and your children. And in other words, these are these are historical, huge, sweeping decisions in the same vein why we should be interested in the disclosure of all that's gone on 
in the UFO field for the last 70 plus years and the practical benefits of opening that closet, of looking at those files, of releasing those technologies, of making them mainstream as fast as possible in terms of the fate of your pocketbook, the fate of your nation, the fate of humanity, which is confronting for the first time in uh, my recent lifetime, I mean, the last time was during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but now we're confronting a madman in the form of Putin, who is literally threatening the world with thermonuclear annihilation, because you can't use a quiet little tactical nuke and get away with it. All hell will break loose, and there's no predicting in terms of any game theory where it could wind up except in Armageddon. So we have not confronted that kind of existential threat since 1962. And now we're all facing it on this planet together, and we're on the eve, literally two days away, from the most critical election you can imagine, where if you select the wrong people, the people who do not, by their own words, believe in the American experiment, then our goose is cooked. In that milieu, the question, Stephen, to you is, when you ran for Congress, when you were on the ballot, and to me, running and being on the ballot is basically the same. You were saying there is an elegant little difference, but uh, okay. When you ran for Congress, how did you, to prospective voters, support and substantiate the idea that by voting for you and voting for this issue, their life would change for the better? My candidacy was a an activist maneuver. It, it wasn't about if you vote for me, your life will change for the better, uh, because the chances of my winning were less than winning the Powerball lottery. <laughs> but the point of the candidacy was to be the first person on a uh, on a federal ballot openly discussing extraterrestrials. I avoided the term UFO as a plague. Um, and doing it in an intelligent way, being involved in the debates and also answering questions about the interstate you know, construction projects and other issues and gun control, meaning that people that are interested in the subject are actually fairly smart and can talk about a lot of things. And uh, I wouldn't have done it at all, except that the district I was living in, the 8th District of Maryland, it's not just any district. It is it's the area of Bethesda, Chevy Chase. It is, it's right next to Washington, D.C., and uh, the, the Washington Post, all the papers cover it. You know, it's like Washington. It's Washington metro area. And so all the papers go there. And so by running in that district, I was going to get covered in the Washington Post and get an enormous amount of press. It simply wouldn't happen if I was running do for you, the same office in Iowa. Do you, uh, so it well, was a, yeah. Do you know whether the Goddard Space Flight Center is in that district? Montgomery County, I don't think so. I think it's in Prince George's. Yeah, we, yeah. we can, somebody could look that up. Yeah, Keith, can, can you look that up on Google? Which county is uh, the, the Goddard uh, Center uh, located in Maryland? So Prince George's County. So the answer to your question is, look, everything I've done, one way or another, 
is to try to raise the public's awareness of the reality of the ET presence, not think about it, meaning, oh, oh, what if there was an ET presence? No, that's not what I'm doing. There is an ET presence, right? The what if is like, what if there are unicorns? What if, you know, uh, you could go on with what ifs all day long? No, no, no. It, it's it's bring, bring, bring up the issue of the reality of the ET presence. What the government has done to prevent them from knowing that and what needs to happen so they will know it. And in certain instances, when I'm asked, what is the reason why they need to know it and the implications, then I answer that. But that takes usually between two and four and a half hours. Oh, good. We got three tonight. So let's get yeah, no, no. Why should we give a damn? Why, Stephen, have you and I, and to a lesser extent, Barbara, devoted our political lives to trying to get people to appreciate we live in a much huger reality than is imagined by almost anybody. And that reality has not only shaped our past, it is shaping, even if we're not aware of it, our future and our decisions, our control over that future is dependent on us knowing this information and then making the appropriate political decisions. Well, have you not answered the question? I mean, you've answered your own question. I mean, that's one way to put it. Uh, I'm trying to say that why we should care about this is one of those kinds of questions where attempting to answer it with a few clever sentences is simply not only not possible, but generally is kind of embarrassing. I, the, the best that I can do in this situation is to give a couple of key points that are relevant to it. But the number of reasons why this embargo should have not been started and should have been ended long ago is in the thousands. Okay? But let me try to boil it down to a couple. But I don't want people to think, oh, so that's the reason. No, it's just a couple of things. One reason. The main the decision to execute this truth embargo uh, and again, not create a secret, right? You know, uh, having a, a, a super secret plane that you're building, right, in a super secret place and not telling anybody about it uh, is not an embargo. It's a, it's a secret, right? Uh, the reason it's embargo and not a secret is the thing that they are, quote, trying to prevent us from knowing about is flying all over the place. Right? It would be like if you lived near a, an Air Force base and the stealth bombers were flying over your house like two or three times a day, and the government was constantly telling you, what stealth bombers? I, I, what are you talking about? What? No stealth bombers. So th this was a particularly difficult problem for them. The government was looking at a situation where they've got non-human entities with unbelievable capabilities to travel, flying everywhere they want to be, landing if they want to, going into the water. Uh, probably having bases, and they don't want the people to, to, to know that. They don't want people to think about it, care about it. And I, I'm amazed somebody didn't raise their hand and say, are you out of your minds, <laughs> right? Are you kidding us, right? But it was an unusual time. And by the time the Robertson panel was convened in late 1952, after the huge flybys over the Capitol in July 52, they had the best opportunity right there to do the right thing right then. 
meaning, look, the press was all up in arms and people were scared. They had to bring a general out to give, what was it, Stanford, whatever his name was, to give a press conference where he sort of admitted what was going on here. And it was all just wild and crazy. At that moment, if they had said, okay, let's, let's, let's go forward. Let's set up uh, all the stuff that they're doing now. Do it then in 62. Set up a program to DOD, pass some legislation, get some witnesses, all oh, parents, whatever. I'll tell you what, we're at the bottom of the hour. We've got three hours oh, here, so let's, uh, let's not rush this. My guest this morning for the first two hours, and we'll be adding uh, George Lambert, our resident metaphysician, and the third is Stephen Bassett, who's been on the trail of breaking through the government cover and screens and lies and deception about UAPs, UFOs, and all the concomitant extraterrestrial realities that you can imagine for many decades. And Barbara Honiger is with us, who among her uh, duties in the Reagan White House was overseeing, in terms of policy, the actual day-to-day activities of the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. And of course, those people, they know where the bodies are buried, at least some of them, because you can see their ruins from a quarter million miles away on the surface of the moon. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. And we are back. My uh, guest this morning, Stephen Bassett and Barbara Honiger, and we're talking about why we should care if, in fact, we are being visited, have been visited in the past by extraterrestrial species. Now, that's a very important item to describe because when we talk about UFOs, most people realize that we're talking about objects, machines, vehicles, whatever, that are man, person, whatever, by people, by entities, by conscious beings. And it's the beings that we're really uh, kind of uh, describing and are concerned with. So when you got these questions as you were campaigning, how did you answer the question, why should we care? And I'd like to answer that later. 
Okay, exactly. I'm, I'm going to go to you next. Okay, go, go ahead, Stephen. Well, again, I was never asked that question. And if I had... Never? Been... No, no. I wasn't asked that question. I was asked some questions, God bless them, but again, I'm on a campaign debate with two very significant politicians, uh, one of whom is now a senator, <laughs> you know, Van Hollen. He, that, that was his first seat. He won that, and now he's a major player, in the, you know, and then Connie Morella was an eight-time Republican, whatever. The point is that I'm trying to answer the question by, by simply raising one reason. One reason why it's important. That's all. Okay. Uh, you want 500 more? Fine. We'll get into it sometime next week. We'll finish. But the one reason that I was trying to point out was this. They made a fateful decision in July, January, early 1953. At that point, they could have done everything that they're doing now. Put some legislation in play. Called for the Department of Defense to start put it, setting up structure to address this issue as opposed to, uh, you know, eventually putting up and doing another study called Blue Book in this case, which is all BS. They could have done it right. They could have gone about it the right way and in short order probably confirmed the ET presence in the mid-1950s latest. But they chose not to. They made a fateful decision for national security reasons. Okay, stop there. Stop there. Uh, Hang on, hang on, hang on. Do you think it was simply stupidity or was there an agenda? Did they not? Did, did they, let me finish the question, please. Did they not follow through because they knew the answer, and the answer was so negative in terms of continued conventional power relationships? And that's what politics are: power relationships. That they chose to deliberately ignore the reality of the phenomenon because the answers would mean they, meaning in power would lose. No. Okay. As of 1952, they didn't know all that much. I mean, they tracked plenty of craft. They had at least one vehicle, possibly a couple. They had some dead bodies. But they didn't know that much. They knew they were here. Uh, and, and so the decision was basically pure national security. Uh, okay, so you're in the was, camp. Was, so again, you're, I, so hang on, Stephen. Let's do this carefully, methodically. We've well, never we've never grappled with this ultimate question: Why have we committed our lives to this, you and me, separately? Well, I'm, I'm trying to give you one reason, Dick. I'm trying to let me finish the reason, and then if you want to go to another, we'll go to another reason. They made a national security decision, which was primarily attached to the fact that by ninety early ninety three. The outlines of what was to come in terms of geopolitical affairs was fairly clear. A fully nuclear weaponized Soviet Union, an eventual probably weaponized communist China, a uh, uh, so a n- nuclear forces. Well, wait, you said 93. Light- I think you mean 53. 53, 53. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they knew the outlines are coming. They, they knew that we were, we were at risk of having another war. It could be a nuclear war. There was going to be a weapons race and so forth. And so the world was a very dangerous place. Oh, wait a minute. Also, when, when, hang on, hang on, hang on. When, when Reagan and Gorbachev had their conversation, it revolved around we need to end what we're doing and become some kind of detente relationship because there's a big unknown out there. And we need to combine our forces to confront the unknown. 
No. Why does that, that? Why did that conversation not happen in '53 as no. opposed to in '87? Well, I think is what well, when the conversation had, they knew what they was an unknown. They knew exactly what the hell was out there. Right. Again, that's diplomacy. That's negotiations. Okay. That's what you hear. Right. The Soviets have known about DT presence all the way back to Roswell. They knew about Roswell probably within five months of the damn thing happening. This this is what people don't get. For the last 75 years, people within all the major governments, not everybody, but those who are in a need to know, have known about the ET presence, have known about the technology, have known a, a great deal of that. And it has been embargoed from us. They will not admit it. They'll lie about it. They classify it to the max. They do whatever they can to keep it under wraps. All of the major nations have done this, led by the United States. Okay? Now, to get back to the point, though, that decision in 53 was faithful. I, I can understand why going to the public and saying, look, and, and in fact, they've got German scientists, the Soviets have got missiles they're building. We're probably going to have to be dealing with the threat of nuclear annihilation. And by the way, ETs are here. And we don't really know yet what the hell is going on with them. They made the decision, no, we're going to embargo this. We're going to keep this under wraps. We're going to use all our special skills to keep this from being an issue, right? Deny it, subvert it, undermine it, whatever the hell. Control the press if we can and so forth. And they did all of that, and they succeeded. And this is the problem. This was the downside of that decision. By creating what ended up being... 70 more years of lying, misrepresentation, obfuscation, while the phenomena continued to grow. In other words, each year that goes by where they're trying to tell us there's no, no there there, the there gets bigger and bigger. And so this gap, this huge gap between the government's position and reality grows and grows, and that that gap, that truth vacuuming, vacuum that was created back then for national security reasons has been a contributing factor to the fundamental decline of trust in the democratic government of the United States by its own people. Lying about Vietnam a couple of times, that was bad. Lying about Iraq was bad. But lying every day of every week of every month for 70 years about something that's flying overhead – and then going into people's rooms and taking them out their windows for annual or monthly inspections, all of that becomes such a grotesque disconnect from government as you serve it and truth teller that it is significantly undermined trust. It is not the only thing, but when you add up all the, the things that have undermined trust in government, which is now an unbelievable load. You have the situation you have today. It is a contributing factor to the cataclysmic political situation we're in right now. So that is one of hundreds of reasons why ending the truth embargo, understanding the truth embargo, and never repeating the truth embargo is important. And that's a short answer, okay. but I like it. All right. I think it was all right. All right. Let me, let me turn to Barbara. Barbara, why should we care? Well, there are a number of reasons. Um, I'd like to make a slight correction to something you said about me a little bit earlier, and that is um, you said that maybe me, a little bit less than than you and Stephen, have been uh, spending decades of our lives trying to get the truth out about um, 
phenomenon that are related to this subject? Yes, I have. Um, I earned the first ever uh, fully Western Associated Western Association of Schools and Colleges WASP fully accredited graduate degree in consciousness studies and experimental parapsychology in the entire planet. Um, and that was um, that was my field of expertise uh, when I was lifted up by a phenomenal synchronicity and dropped in the West Wing of the White House in the Reagan administration. Um, so I, I just want to point out that I want to make a couple of comments over what's already been said here, just to set the record straight besides that. And that is, um, number one, um, I consider the reason that we should care about this the most, there, I agree with Stephen, there are multiple, multiple reasons. But the one that comes up first in my mind when you ask the question is, is something that you say almost every program. Richard. And it's true. And that is that the answer to this question, the reality behind it, the reality behind paranormal phenomenon, um, the reality behind UAPs, the reality behind the important abductions, of course, the military is doing their own to try to muddy the waters, um, the especially the biological experimentation, the DNA experimentation on the abductees by whoever is abducting them or whatever is abducting them. This is about who we are. It is about what human beings on this planet are, what we are. Doesn't matter if we were from the Soviet Union or from Germany or from Africa or from the United States. It doesn't matter. It is what is the human race? Because I'm not aware of abductions, although there could be, of, uh, you know, vesicularis monkeys and orangutans. <laughs> uh, seriously. Okay. Um, so I think that it's really about who we are. Now, if you were to ask me for what I believe is the kind of reigning hypothesis in my mind that tends to make sense of a lot, that is, we have met the ETs and they are us. They are us in the future. And they have found a way to come back into the past. And that's the reason that they are preventing us from annihilating ourselves, because they would pop out of existence in the future where they are. Um, so uh, that's, that's my first answer. Um, the second thing I want to point out is that I find it very, very fascinating you you opened the show uh, close to the beginning of opening the show by pointing out that, to our knowledge, and you and I have looked, we have Googled and Googled and Googled, um, we have only found three articles on the classified version of the first annual report to Congress that was released, uh, you know, just minutes before the deadline, late night on Halloween, um, and that is in uh, two of the UK papers, The Sun and especially The Daily Mail. Um, the Sun is more of a, of a kind of a newspaper rag. It's, um, it's a tabloid, okay. It's a tabloid, but The Daily Mail is a real paper. Yep. And The Daily Mail article, by the way, have you put these three articles up in your items? Because if you won't, I'll send them. I put, I put the Daily Mail piece because I have a kind of a warm spot in my heart. The Daily Mail flew all – the chief science reporter for the Daily Mail flew all the way to Flagstaff, Arizona, 
to interview me in the Lowell Observatory uh, mm -hmm. in 2003 for a major piece and then a book that he was doing. And mm. and it was a very long, very interesting conversation. So, yeah, I kind of have a warm spot for the Daily Mail. And it was the most thorough uh, reveal. And it had the most interesting uh, tagline in the summary, which was, and I'll read it, um, an inside source who leaked them the story about the classified report said, quote, they don't want to talk about the unexplainable stuff because they really, really, this is the Pentagon now, this is the ODNI report, they really, really don't know what the hell they are, meaning the sure. objects, and that's the truth, the source said. And I think right. that's a huge part of, basically, they're still covering their delicate posteriors. Yeah, so it, it's, it's very possible they don't know. I mean, I know that Stephen says they know everything. I'm not certain that's true. They know a lot. But I don't think that they really know the big picture of this. I don't think anybody does yet. Um, and I'd like to point out in the Daily Mail article, they, they refer to it as an exclusive. Now, somehow the sun got a hold of it probably after the Daily Mail published it. It really wasn't exclusive. But it's labeled in all caps exclusive um, from the Daily Mail. And I'm going to read a, a sentence. Um, first, I find it very fascinating that someone leaked only to a British paper and not a U U.S. paper. Of course, the U.S. papers might have been leaked by this uh, secret source as well and decided not to publish. But but the only one that we know that uh, that published that was the original leak with the exclusive is the Daily Mail. So here's a sentence from the Daily Mail article from this um, from this leak, presumably from the new uh, threat identification program. Okay. Um, no, actually, the successor of the, the new task force. So it says, quote, the hall, meaning the documents response, um, includes, um, this is from a Freedom of Information Act request that came out um, to uh, ATIP. The hall the document's response includes reports into research on the biological effects of UFO sightings on humans and, I underline this, sets out categorizations under the phenomenon for paranormal experiences. Now, mm. this is very important um, because that's, that's my expertise. And it's also, as I understand it, Georgia Lambert's expertise, partially. And, been, and, and it's mine because that's nothing but hyperdimensional physics straight through. Right. right, exactly. Okay, so I've been interested all of my life because of my own paranormal experiences. That's the reason I got the first accredited graduate degree in the world. Well, wasn't, the, wasn't this a JFK University up there near yes. Berkeley? Okay. John F. Kennedy University in Orinda, California. Yes, I was I was the first graduate, and in June 1981, I walked across the stage with none other than Manley Hall. Uh, <laughs> Manley Hall was receiving the first uh, Master of Science, accredited Master of Science degree uh, in, in consciousness studies. Um, uh, the first honorary degree, and I received the first earned degree. And we sat next, next to each other on the stage to get our degrees. But anyway, I just want to point out the paranormal aspect to this. I also, I also think it's incredibly important to realize that, um, and I know that 
to my pleasant surprise, and I didn't know this, I don't know why I didn't know it, but on a previous program, not last Sunday, but the one that Stephen and I and you were on previously, some months ago, um, I learned from something Stephen said that he got into this, if I recall correctly, because of the abduction phenomenon, which I consider to be paramount. Um, I consider the whole tech uh, aspect to be secondary to the abduction phenomenon. And because we know that the abduction phenomenon is absolutely about tinkering with the human DNA and possibly producing human other hybrids, um, why would you want to do that? You would want to do that to try to produce human hybrids that were adapted to other planets. So this is, I believe this is an interplanetary biological experimentation. They have perhaps come back from the future and they have to help us survive so that they can survive. Well, this gets into all kinds of really interesting existential questions like, is there only one timeline? I don't think there is. I think there are no, branching timelines, which means our future is not preordained by whatever happens in our present because it will branch. So Oh yeah, that's that's what miracles are about. I don't I don't I don't see their, their intervention, whoever they are, and there's more than one they. I think that in the public domain there's so little real solid scientifically verifiable information and a huge cornucopia of speculation and trash and disinformation and blind canyons and deliberate lies and all that to keep us from knowing the truths and there's more than one that that's why having an established official investigation is crucial to kind of centralize a process where we all can go to the same sources, the same data, and learn almost like in real time the process of figuring this out, which should have happened, and I agree, Stephen, it should have happened 70 plus years ago. It could start in the next couple, three weeks. Let me remind you of one other thing, and then you can go back, you know, to another question or whatever, and that is um, – I was in the uh, Roosevelt Room of the West Wing of the White House in late February, probably more into March of 1981, when uh, President Reagan uh, held a special meeting with all of his cabinet secretaries, and that included the CI, new CIA director, William Casey, who had been his, his, cap, his um, campaign manager in the 1980 election under which Casey and Bush Sr. stole the election from Carter in the October Surprise, which is the subject of my book by that title. And so in that meeting, I was, because I was the uh, the uh, top assistant, the top aide uh, to, the, to the chief domestic policy advisor to Reagan, who was uh, convening the meeting for Reagan, um, they went around the table, and the purpose of the meeting was for all of the cabinet secretaries and the CIA director, who, who then was not a cabinet secretary, but he was in the meeting, to, um, after a few weeks in their respective agencies and departments, to let Reagan know what they found out really goes on in the government, in their agencies and departments. And it was fascinating. I was the note taker. And they went around the room, and when they got to William Casey, 
Um, I'm just going to give you the famous quote that I am the source for. I immediately told Sarah McClendon, who published it without naming me as the source, so that I could continue giving her information for the inside of the future. Of course. Um, but, but William Casey said to Reagan, he said, Mr. President, our, meaning the CIAs and the government, our disinformation program will finally be successful when everything, everything the American public believes is false. Now, this applies not only to 9-11, it applies to this. This is not unique. This embargo or secrecy is not unique. It is a conscious policy. Did we lose Barbara? No, no, I'm here. There you are, okay. I'm here. A conscious policy covering all of government, you're saying? Covering all of the government. Well, but that's been history. And then the counterforce is you have forces that are determined to break through and to provide people with the truth, various well, yes, versions that's, that's of the correct. truth. So that is correct. So that but I don't. I don't hold great faith in a, this congressional process. I mean, I hope something happens. Um, I would just like to go on record that I told you so, you know, a, a week ago or so. I said, well, they're going to release the classified report just, you know, before the deadline, but they're not going to release the, the public report. And you said, oh, yes, they will. This is so important. I said, no, they won't. <laughs> so I was right about that. Um, I, I don't I – don't I don't think people – should put too much expectation on this congressional process uh, producing anything of real significant value. Um, because I know from personal experience with the October Surprise Task Force, my book um, was published on May 12th of 1989, and then there were three others by Inside the Beltway people um, two to three years after mine. And when those came out, uh, there was a uh, – the Democrats were in control of the House of Representatives, and they realized the political um, advantage to holding an October Surprise Task Force investigation. And so they voted it. Um, they voted it in, and it was funded higher than the 9-11 Commission. And I, my book started that process, my whistleblowing book. And when the congressional investigation actually happened, it was called the October Surprise House of Representatives Task Force, they put um, Lee Hamilton in charge of it. He was head of the House uh, Foreign Affairs Committee, and uh, I guess it was Foreign Affairs, yeah, House Foreign Affairs Committee, not Foreign Relations at the Senate. And, um, of course, they, he, he did a bloody cover-up. I mean, it was it was complete whitewash. Uh, and then that's why, because he proven his bona fides as being the perfect fixer for any truth they don't want out. Um, then uh, they put him as the co-chairman of the 9-11 Commission, which was a bloody cover-up and a whitewash. So I don't expect much from this process. I hope I'm wrong. Um, but that's why I find it very interesting that um, even this source from the inside, the people on the inside of this new task force, um, under the um, the deputy head of intelligence for the Pentagon, um, they are upset even on the inside of it that uh, the first report, even the classified report, uh, does not go into uh, 
they claim uh, what they what they don't think they can begin to explain because those are the ones that matter. Yeah, of course. Okay, Stephen, we got about four minutes to the top of the hour. Start the rebuttal as to why you and I think the next one, the 2023 NDAA is really going to break the dam open because I have my thoughts and you have yours. And then we'll continue it on the other side. And I hope you're right. The dam has been leaking water for quite a while. Um, what will ultimately break the dam will be the hearings. This see, see, yeah, hang on, hang on, hang on. See, that's where you and I totally disagree. And I'm with Barbara, but I want you to make your case. And then on the other side, I'll, I'll, I'll make mine. Go ahead. Well, it's, a case to make. I'm just telling you, the hearing is what's going to break the dam. Uh, as far as the uh, uh, the legislation, this legislation, which is still not that known, it's not getting that much press. Uh, very little, actually. Uh, some podcast activity, of course, but who can follow 2,000 podcasts? <laughs> but it, it will get more attention when it's passed. When he signs it in November, this bill is going to get more attention. Of course, I'm going to do everything I can to ensure that. Because the language in this bill is highly significant in ways the previous two bills were not. And it sends a very clear message that they are serious about moving this along and getting the job done. And all I can say is, is that the American people think the job is one thing, but it's in fact something else. But as long as the job gets done, it doesn't really matter. If the millennials and those that know nothing about this issue think that, my God, the government finally learned that there was something going on and they're doing the right thing and we get the hearings and disclosure, fine. The fact that that's not true and a lot of other people that know better know that, no, no, the job is they've got to somehow get out from under the truth embargo, set up this infrastructure and have it happen so that the public relations wise, it's as good as possible. Because they know, regardless of how well they pursue this, when disclosure takes place, the government is going to have to deal with a raft of, how would you say, caca. And it's not going to be fun, but it'll be a lot better than if this thing suddenly blew out on its own or another nation were to announce it. Um, so uh, that's it. The, getting the job done is getting through disclosure and uh, – the hearings is what's going to break that open. This legislation is a major step in that, and I gave you the reasons for that. It's freeing up the witnesses. It's actually providing them protection. It's, 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 it's going to create a library of – they're going to review all the NDAs decided to, to find out who's being inappropriately suppressed from speaking. God knows how many people that is. There could be 10,000 Dietrichs and Ravers out there. So that's how I see it. Jim. Okay, hold on. We're at the top of the hour. My guest this morning for the first two hours was the other side of midnight on this Sunday, November 6, 2022, is Stephen Bassett, who is probably the chief and longest serving activist in the field of UFO disclosure that exists on planet Earth, and Barbara Honiger, who was a uh, policy analyst in the Reagan White House, did a lot of things regarding NASA policy in those years that we really kind of haven't talked about, and very fortuitously has a degree in an area we're going to get into later in the program, which is, um, well, how does the paranormal hyperdimensional realm enter into all this? You're on the other side of midnight. 
My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. I want to talk to you a couple minutes here about support. Um, as you're going to hear tonight, it's really, it's all hitting the fan. And what you want is in this incredibly turbulent and disinformation environment, which we all know exists, and in this area it's going to exist even more, you're going to want to have people, sources, voices, investigations, representation that are going to tell you the truth. And as I said at the top of the show, there are two branches of this investigative process which are now going to come together. The ET realm, UFOs, technologies, the crossover between physics, hyperdimensional physics, um, the consciousness and technology realms that will be discovered as this process goes forward to be one and the same. And we'll give some specifics later in the show about that. And then the other branch, which is, of course, what is going on in the artifact realm, in the extraterrestrial ruins realm, which speaks directly to how long has the hidden history of the human race been in existence? And is that one of the major reasons, which I think it is, for the sustained cover-up of the first phenomenon, the UFO phenomenon, because ultimately they are one and the same. I believe that we can document that both branches need support. Stephen's activities need support, and we need support. So if you want to contribute to the other side of midnight or the enterprise mission, which is our research arm, we have a donate button on the page. On the other side of midnight.com, there's a donate button. You click on that, PayPal opens up. You give us $5, $10, $50. I mean, the other night, we had someone give us 100 bucks. Amazing, absolutely amazing. The people will actually have the vision to do that. So do it again. Other people out there, in fact, for a couple of days, I think that button was not working. We fixed the software problem that had to do with an upgrade. We were going through the whole system and, and putting in place. And so what we want to do is to basically tell everybody now that that button is working. If you click on it, it takes you to PayPal. Send us something. Send us anything, even a dollar, two dollars. It all adds up because we have a worldwide reach. And now is when we need the funds so we are here as a voice, as your voice, when the most interesting developments in the history of this investigation and this campaign are coming to a head. Starting next week, next Monday night, when in the pre-dawn hours here, we're going to be launching again to the moon. There will be three missions then en route. The... Artemis 1 mission, the Capstone mission, and the South Korean mission with the camera, which will literally take extraordinary high-resolution, high-sensitivity images of the structures, the glass structures on the moon as part of preparation for future Artemis human missions to come. It's all going to come out. And then, of course, 
the dark horse waiting in the wings is a guy named Musk with his own spacecraft and rocket, the Starship System, which is part of Artemis in terms of the human landings on Artemis III. But even before then, his own mission with tourists with lots and lots of HD cameras orbiting close up to the moon, looking down and taking photographs of everything they see. So if you want an honest voice in this process, if you want to see the people inside as part of the legislation we're going to discuss in the next half hour, come forth, come clean, sit in hearings, and in other ways make their knowledge known. You need to support the efforts of Stephen, the Paradigm Research Group, and our own efforts here at the other side of midnight so that it all comes out properly in the end. Thank you. We now return you to our regular program. Okay, Stephen, tell everybody why this 2023 NDA, which contains this crucial language about legal uh, impenetrability of, of, a, of a shield, a guardianship of telling the truth by those inside who know is probably the most important breakthrough in the last 70 plus years of this phenomenon. Uh Help me though, Dick. I'm I'm getting incredibly old. Did I read the Did I read the language at the beginning of this show? No, from the no. Bill? But I want you okay. to do it again. Okay. I did this actually last week, but now I'm gonna. I'm glad I'm gonna be able to do redundancy it again. counts nowadays. Absolutely. And I and I want to emphasize. I'm gonna read this very slowly because it is it's 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 legalese somewhat. It's it's DOD speak, but. I really want people to get this, right? So I want to read very slowly. Okay. So there are three major sections in the bill that's going to be signed by the president soon. In the, and the sections as, as they are in the Senate bill is section 703, 704, 705. 704 is the big one. Okay. All right. Um, one section I will not read to you because it's very complicated. But really what it's saying is we're setting up all this to examine, track, study, whatever, to study the phenomena. And we're not interested in the human stuff. We're not interested in uh, what the U.S. has or its secret programs or, or any secret programs of foreign nations. And the way they put it is this. We don't want reports. In other words, if you have a sighting and you report it and your, your superior, because of their classification access, in other words, they have a higher level of classification or what have you, know that what you saw was in fact a U.S. special 
device, okay? Mm-hmm. That's not going to get passed up to the DOD the, the program here. They don't want to hear those. They only want to hear about the ones that cannot be explained. Uh, it, could, it could be clearly non-human technology. So that was notable. Then you get down to this section. And boy, does it get intense. Okay, here's the first thing that is really profound that I want your, your, uh, your listeners to hear. It's in Section C of Section 5 of Section 704 of the bill. Now, the so bill is actually linked. It's your item number one tonight in, in Steve Best's section of Radio with Pictures. Uh, it's called S for Senate. 4503, that's the number of the bill, Mm -hmm. Intelligence Authorization Act for Fiscal Year 2023, which has this language, which when the president signs it, becomes law. That's most important to understand. This is not just innuendo, not rumor, not, you know, blogs or social media. This will become law under which this process will unfold. Okay. So I'm going to read you some things that have never been in any legislation on this issue ever, period. In fact, all that's happened in the last two and a half years surpasses everything that's happened from the standpoint of the political realm in the previous 70 years. That's how fast things are moving. Yep. So it is called Records of Non-Disclosure Agreements under Section C-1. Listen carefully. The Secretary of Defense the national the director of national intelligence the secretary of homeland security the heads of such other departments and agencies of the federal government that have supported investigations of the type of events covered in par- subparagraph a that's uap events obviously which now includes nasa because of the panel uh, yeah yeah, uh, yeah they are included of subsection b1 so uap events and activities and programs described in subparagraph B of such subsection, and contractors of federal government supporting such activities. In other words, they're referring to the defense contractors as well, and programs uh, supporting such activities and programs. And here's the here's the killer: shall conduct comprehensive searches of all records relating to non-disclosure orders or agreements or other obligations relating to the types of events described in subsection A and provide copies of all relevant documents to the office. What did this paragraph, which is about to become law, say? This office wants all of these entities including uh, government contractors that have any non-disclosure agreements relating to the phenomena, preventing people from speaking. They want copies of all of them to review past, present, and future. And when they get those non-disclosure agreements, one, They will find out who issued them. Two, they will find out why they issued them. 
three, they will find out the information that they did not want discussed by the persons involved, and they will find out the people that are under the NDA, not just living, but those in the past. They will literally have their – in a compilation of the entire, at least written, documented process that has been holding the truth together. And then they can make decisions about, well, should we avoid that agreement, this agreement? Should we open up that part of that agreement? Should this person be able to come forward? This is beyond – this is unbelievable. <laughs> you, you, if you're trying to play a game to, to, to extend the truth embargo out another two or three or five or ten years, the last thing you do is put that paragraph – into the National Defense Authorization Act. So that's number one. But let's move on down. As they let's say in the old down. commercials, but that's not all, folks. Yeah. So now we go to the Section D, Protection from Liability and Private Right of Action. This is amazingly oh, important. This is crucially important. Now, here we go. Number one, it shall not be a violation of any law and no cause of action shall lie or be maintained in any court or other tribunal against any person for reporting inform any information through and in compliance with the system established pursuant to subsection B1. What does it mean? It means that in terms of the appropriate providing of information within this program, within the services, not to the New York Times, not to your, your, your book club at the library, but in the, within the system, there is no violation of law and no action that can be taken. Basically, they're telling every single person out there, like, like a Fravor or a Dietrich or a Bob Salas and on and on and on, you got something, you go, okay. And this is not a whistleblower protection thing. It's nothing to do with whistleblowers. It has to do with people who have information that they feel they probably should, they could come forward about, and they're being told you're okay. But they go further. Section two, an employee of a federal agency and an employee of a contractor for the federal government who has authority to take direct Others to take, recommend, or approve any personnel action shall not, with respect to such authority, take or fail to take or threaten to take or fail to take a personnel action, including the revocation of suspension of security clearances with respect to any individual as a reprisal for any reporting as described in paragraph one. So in paragraph one, it says it's not a violation of any law, no cause for action. In paragraph, in section two, they say if you take action, you are in violation of this law. And then, and this is what I really love, just to make the point that they're really serious here, that this isn't just another silly game they're playing. Section three, in a case in which an employee described in paragraph two, takes a personal action against an individual in violation of such paragraph, meaning something coming forward with information regarding UAP phenomena or anything related to it, 
The individual may bring a private civil action for all appropriate remedies, including injunctive release and compensatory and punitive damage against the government or other employer who took the personnel action in a federal district court of competent jurisdiction. Now, I think most of your listeners know that when it comes to suing government, they have all kinds of rules and regulations about who you can sue and who you can't, and mostly you can't. Well, it's usually who has standing. That's one of those plastic terms. Oh, about standing. Well, they take yourself out of the standing. You don't have standing. They have literally said you have standing on the UAP issue, and you can sue for money. I know some people would read that and not have a clue why that is important. That's why I do what I do. All right. Those three things are the witness, quote, protection and the opening up part of this bill. It is not about whistleblowers. These are not whistleblowers. Whistleblowers are people who come forward to report crime in their workplace. Yeah, but wait, wait. And they're the, the, getting the, the, retribution. This, this gets into your definition versus mine versus Barbara's, okay? To me, these are whistleblowers because you're you're blowing the whistle from what's been secret inside to the outside. No. I, I just Dick, you and I will never agree on this. Never. A whistleblower is somebody that comes forward That's and That's your definition. It's not the damn dictionary definition. Okay. I, I disagree there too. All right. Well, first of all, but let's not get hung embargo, up on semantics. Listen, please. Let's not. We went embargo. down that road. We went down that road a week ago. Continue. Well, let's go down it again because it's damn important. The truth embargo is not illegal. It is a legal national security policy. At the moment, this makes the embargo illegal. No, within this system only. I agree with Steve it's saying that. We, we are now setting up the basis for you to come forward. It is not saying that what the government's done since 1947 is illegal. Y'all come on forward. No. So, but it's giving the witnesses the protection. Why is this important? Because the fundamental goal here is to get to the hearings. And, the, the, and, and you can't have a powerful witness testify to your to your committee if you don't even know who they are if they don't come forward we know there are a lot of them out there i know some of them in person but i assure you for every one person that's come forward like a david fraber there's 10 that haven't come forward but could they're basically opening the door so they can come forward and give the kind of information that david fraber gave and when david fraber gave that information he was not blowing the whistle on the u.s government and the reason this is important is if you start trying to call these witnesses as referred here as whistleblowers you're basically putting them into the same pot as people that come forward to report fraud and all manner of crimes on their workplace and those people are already covered by the Whistleblower Act. They don't need this act, okay? And so you're, you're, crim- you're literally basically saying all these people are coming forward to report criminal activity. Nobody wants to be a whistleblower. It's bad enough coming forward on this stuff as it is, but to say, oh, I'm going to be a whistleblower like Snowden or, or, or Chelsea Manning or whatever the hell. No, words matter. They are not whistleblowers, period. Well, given that the press needs a term, what term would you apply to these people? They are potential witnesses regarding phenomena and events and things that have taken place while serving in the role uh, in their government, 
in the government as in the yep, services in, or in, 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 as a civilian contractor. In one word, what are they? Not a paragraph, one word. Witnesses. Okay. All right. Moving on. Okay. Well, I have a comment on this. Oh, by all means, go ahead. Um, one of the things that really jumped at, jumps out at you, and it jumped out at me when I've read book after book after book about uh, abduction experiences and um, craft landings near, you know, nuclear facilities and all, all of it. I've got many, many, many books I've read on it, and I'm sure you have too, um, is that within the system, which is what this is about, it's opening up free flow of information within the secrecy system. Okay, so I agree with uh, totally with Stephen about that. But the, one of the things that jumps out at you is you remember after 9-11, even though it was for the wrong reasons, um, there was the slogan, see something, say something. Yep, yep. Well, w within the, the military intelligence community, especially the military, whenever there was some kind of an incident, um, it's almost as if the policy – uh, within the military intelligence national security system was see something, say nothing. Uh, see something, whatever you do, don't even tell your superior. <laughs> okay. So um, people have been, people who have had actual experiences within the military and intelligence, presumably also, although that's less well known in the literature, um, they, they have been discouraged hugely from reporting even within their own system. So I see this, the language that Stephen has read here, and he read last Sunday as well, um, I see it as a kind of huge freedom of information act uh, demands on the system. And I think it can be inferred, although not necessarily so, that the uh, office, the, the, the senior uh, military officials for intelligence in the Pentagon wouldn't wouldn't want this and wouldn't be doing it if they already knew the answers to these questions. Where are the national? Where are the non-disclosure agreements? Where are the non-disclosure orders? What are they for? Who is involved? I mean, if they already knew this, I don't think this would uh, be a necessary part of the bill. Well, again, let me respond to that. Uh, no, there's a lot of things they don't know cross-platform, cross-agency. A lot of that comes from stovepiping. One yeah. of the ways that the whole issue is – well, one of the ways a lot of things in government are – I, I think you need to define stovepiping, Steve. Stovepiping is mean uh, something is confined within a particular pipe, and it's not allowed to go anywhere else. And so it's just kind of stuck in that. And then there's another pipe five feet away, and they don't have any direct connection. It's a way of isolating it. The actual origin of the phrase, I don't, I don't know. This is like a special access program. Well, a special access program is what. There's many ways. Well, it, it, it was, all right. Hang on. It, what it means is up your own chain of command. In other words, you can't laterally talk to somebody who's not in the program about your program, but you can talk to your superior. He can talk to his superior. That kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's true. So, but let me again try to provide some context here so people can understand. And this is this is because they, a lot of thought has gone into this. Look, they've got all these people in government who have 
direct information regarding work that they may have done on program, things that they have seen, like the pilots, and so forth and so forth. There's a lot of such people, okay? And these people are not speaking. One of the reasons, and, and, and if they don't come forward, all right, if they don't come forward, then obviously they're not available to be witnesses as they start to get the public testimony on this. And the more they have to choose from, the better. I mean, it's not everybody is going to be there, but there, there are some witnesses that could be extremely significant, some that, that aren't. They also, so, and so that, that they know, okay? But they also know that in perhaps the majority of all the cases, and not in the majority, but in many, many of the cases, they're not coming forward under a basic NDA, okay? See, there's a big difference between a pilot who sees some extraordinary craft comes back, tells a couple of his buddies, and then the CEO comes in and says, you say anything more about that, and we're taking your flight flying credentials away, hmm. okay? And the guy says, absolutely not. I mean, losing my flight privileges, never, I can never let that happen. And so it shuts them up. That's not an NDA, right? That's internal, how would you say, almost peer pressure control. And so those people who have had those kinds of things who are not under an NDA, like Fravor, may, may, may come forward. And so all this protection language is to help them come forward, all right? It's and so the, they get that covered. It, it is the cultural cover-up that's being covered in addition to the letter of the law. Well, yeah, but the, 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 the protection from liability section pretty much makes it much easier for all of the people that are not under NDAs but have been intimidated or definitely think it's not in their best interest, you can come forward. Which is the culture. The NDA section, right, yeah. is because a lot of these people aren't coming forward. They haven't been intimidated. They haven't been threatened. They simply told you need to sign an they NDA. They have to sign a piece of paper. I, I think the folks at NASA have been forced to sign a piece of paper so they will not reveal their artifacts all over the damn solar system. This I, I opens think, that system up totally. I think that I think that I think the number of NDAs that are floating around, both uh, you know, current, uh, no longer valid, but in the files, is huge. Uh, yep. And what that section does, and this is what's clever about it, what they're saying in that section is, you need to send copies of these to this office. Is there a it's time not limit? Saying what it's going to do with them? Is there a time limit in the legislation for that? Hang on. Okay. While he's reading, uh, Barbara, I'm really thinking that this not is not just confined within the chain of command, within the government process, within you know legal language of of classification and all that. That this applies to the First Amendment. Because I can see a scenario where a lot of people are not going to go through the trouble of congressional hearings. They're going to go directly to the New York Times, the Washington Post, or they're going to write a book. And they're going to use photographs that are in public domain, which all the NASA imagery is, to basically write a book and blow the whistle in a way that they get paid for their decades of faithful service now that they're covered by the law. What do you think? Well, as I mentioned last Sunday, um, it may or may not be a coincidence. I don't. I think it probably isn't. As they say um, in politics, there are no coincidences. No, no. But um, oh, uh, President Biden 
I was in the New York Times literally the same day uh, as the, um, I believe it was the Julian Barnes article that we talked about a week ago on Sunday, a week ago Sunday, and that is that President Biden has signed, I believe it was an executive order anyway, it's new policy of the government that um, no journalist, uh, and it gets a little bit uh, iffy how they define a journalist or a member of the media, um, but no journalist or member of the media who receives even classified information uh, and uh, publishes it, uh, will uh, the government, the Department of Justice, will not go after them for their sources. That's crucial. That's the other book. It's end. the other side of the coin. It's, it's, it's the other bookend. Yes, yes. Dick, I have the answer to your question. Okay. Uh, yeah, there, there's a second section under the non-disclosure agreement um, uh, statements about collecting all those. It's a submittal to Congress. It says, with respect to the section one, the head of the office shall make the record compiled under paragraph one accessible to the Congressional Intelligence Committee, the Congressional Defense Committee, and congressional leadership, and not later than September 30, 2023, and at least once every fiscal year thereafter through fiscal year 2026, provide to such committees and congressional leadership briefings and reports on such records. Ah. So what they're saying here is that... So in the law, they have a year, but they could do it two days from now, as soon as the law is signed. They're giving them no later than 2030 to start moving these, getting these NDA, uh, copies of these NDAs into their hands, and then thereafter, they have to update... Well, you mean mean September 2023? 2023, yes. Uh, And thereafter, they have uh, to provide uh, the records for the new ones on a yearly basis. Now, okay, what does this mean? Does this mean, well, I guess we're going to have to wait to 2026? No, not at all. They are setting up structure. They're setting up things that are going to be used. But most importantly, they're putting everybody on notice. The entire government's been put on notice that the situation of NDAs and their use in containing the truth embargo is soon basically going to, if not evaporate, kind of fall apart and to get ready. Okay, let's, let's hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning, Stephen Bassett and Barbara Honiger, and we'll be joined in half an hour by Georgia Lambert. You're on the other side of midnight. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. 
Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight on this Sunday night, almost Monday morning. Everyone turned their clocks back, I hope. I'm amazed always every year at how many clocks I have to turn back. Some of them are automatic. The phone system did not reset the clock on my digital phone for 12 hours. So it was kind of like odd man. I don't understand. They don't come in on the weekend. I don't know what's going on. Computers, computers, computers. Anyway, tonight my guests this morning, Barbara Honiger and Stephen Bassett. And Stephen is literally laying down the law. I mean, this is, this is such a breakthrough, Stephen. We are in a whole new world, right? We are in the end game of the truth embargo. And what uh, a lot of... What I know uh, is is that everything they're doing not only is going to help end the embargo, but it's also incredibly valuable because all of these laws and regulations and structures and departments are going to be needed 10 times more once the confirmation takes place. And so they're basically just getting it all set up in advance. So no money is going to be wasted. And so the president announced on Monday that, uh, that there, there is an ET presence and that's a non-human craft. And the next day, 100, 200 million people are going to want to know, what are you doing about it? And they're going to say, hey, we're rocking. We've got departments. We've got this. We've got that. We're getting information. We're going to hold more hearings. It's all set up and rocking. And then somebody like me, maybe, or somebody else will say, why didn't you set it up in 52? <laughs> and they'll say, do you really want to go there? Okay. I mean, look, let's just move forward together. And the millennials won't ask them at all. Everybody bought after everybody born after 1990 give a crap about Roswell, Blue Book, or anything else. They're just going to go, "Wow, hey, we finally found out the CTs here. Isn't that cool, right?" And they're just not in the movies, so it's not going to be as bad as they think. But nevertheless, it's still going to be well. Rough it's not going to be as bad because remember Brookings. Brookings said in the 50s, again, late 50s, that if you made this stuff public too soon, you would destroy civilization. And that was complete and total bullshit. Well, we can argue about that. I don't want to argue. Hang on. I don't don't want to argue. It's propaganda. I don't. Stephen, 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 please. didn't have enough substance behind it or research to make it worth it. And most people go by what people in authority told them back in the 50s and 60s. You and I can argue, and it's pointless. How many people even know about the Brookings Report? How many people read it? It doesn't matter. It was their assessment as to popular psychology given, given, given. God, I can't say a thing on my own show. Nothing. Given that. The, the predominant, given that the predominant wisdom of the time was BEM, bug-eyed monster, we're going to come and eat your face off. There was a huge fear was- campaign in media, in movies, television, whatever, of bad, you know, human-eating aliens. In that milieu, there was a 
speck of a germ of a, a, a vestige of truth to Brookings' position. But what they recommended, and which we've seen happen over the last generation or more, is an incredible public overwhelming onslaught of movies covering every aspect of extraterrestrial reality, including a lot of extraordinary positive ones like E.T., et cetera, et cetera. So the social and cultural and psychological milieu now for the revelation, hey, boys and girls, it's all real, I think is totally different than it would have been in the post-war era of the of the McCarthy hearings, this incredible paranoia about everything in the 1950s. Well, given, let me, let me, given, let me, let me all Stephen, right, Barbara, yes, yes, Barbara, say something. Let me ask Stephen why his reason for why uh, it didn't happen in the 50s. Well, it was 52, five years after uh, Roswell. They had gotten pretty much a clean. They they they, they were able to turn the turn off the Roswell story. They covered it, so uh, they were pretty much comfortable. There were sightings going on. It was bubbling. It was getting going. All right, um, people were paying attention. Some people, but it was manageable. But when the, when they flew over the Washington for two consecutive weekends, they scared the hell out of out of the out of the government and the military. And so what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Now they didn't bomb the Washington. They didn't. They didn't blow anything up. They just flew over. All right. So it's fifty-two, late fifty-two, July fifty-two. The the, the U.S. It knows about the Soviet hydrogen bomb program. The Soviets have already tested the hydrogen, the atomic bombs. They know that they're building the missiles, right? And so they know for a fact. And, and by 52, there's an iron curtain across Europe. Uh, most of our top generals, Patton, Lee May, wants to invade right away. I mean, they want to go right in and, you know, and invade Russia in the winter. Who does it? And so, or the Soviet Union in the winter. And so they kind of know what's coming. They see that we're going to have some nuclear standoff thing that could go hot. We could have a war. They, that we are in extremely dangerous times. The ETs are not the reason we're in dangerous times. In fact, they went out of the way to say on a number of occasions, in fact, the Robertson panel in 52 <laughs> specifically said they don't see them as a threat, but they see that, it, it, that the, the public's interest could be a threat. And the Rookings report, Booker's report was published eight years after that, which is another reason why. When did Truman fire MacArthur? What now? When did Truman fire General MacArthur. He fired MacArthur during the Korean War around a similar time because MacArthur wanted to be too aggressive. Do we have a date? With, I'm just asking a simple question. Do you remember the date? God, I'm going to go 53. Okay, well, we can Google. So in that time yeah. frame, you're right. After, so, hang on, I'm not done. Please, uh, Stephen, please, just take a deep breath. We have plenty of time. Right after he was fired, MacArthur went to West Point, his alma mater. Yeah, sure. And, and gave a major speech in which he said, on the record, there's film, there's tape. Actually, it's a wire recording. The next war will be an interplanetary war. What do you think he meant by that? I need to review that quote because interplanetary, the use of that word doesn't ring to me. I am 
I don't know if he used that word, but I can say he whatever did. word he used. He did. Uh, well, okay. Well, so maybe he said global. I, I, interplanetary I just, I, I, is not global. Interplanetary means enemies outside the Earth. Let's I understand. I think Stephen is questioning the word. I, I don't know. Look, let, let's, I'm, let, let me go with it. It's let me, not let me, a trivial point, Stephen, because if the top general just fired by the president said the next war, because we were involved in Korea, and we were looking at nuclear stuff from the Soviet Union, will be interplanetary, it can only mean one thing. The, the enemy, the real enemy, is upstairs. And that was based on Roswell forward et al. There was nothing that happened to Roswell that indicates that. You I, don't know what, what the inside generals and the CIA was thinking. Uh, uh, can I answer one question at a time? The okay. question is, what was going on with MacArthur? Yeah. I have no doubt that MacArthur was informed about Roswell. It's inconceivable that he was not, given his status and his range. So he knows that there was a crash at Roswell. He may know of a second crash as well. He knows that we have bodies. He knows that whoever those entities were, they didn't bomb anything. They didn't blow anything up. They just crashed and died. But still, the issue of... right. The fact that we're not alone in the universe and there's higher tech is now known to him. And he is a warrior, true to the end, right? He's fighting and killing right up to the last day. And so in his, if in his final speech in, in 53 or roughly right around then, hey, well, no, what, what was it? I forget how long after he was fired. I think he lived a little bit. We need to check that. But if it is final speech, he makes that statement. It's not an unreasonable statement to make. Does it mean that he knows, oh, yeah, we're going to have to go to war with these people? No, no, it means he has a perception, which is probably a reflection of the military-industrial complex of that period inside. Of course, they were – obviously, they were always concerned about well, the possibility. It's their job to be concerned yeah, Dick, I know that. They were always concerned about the fact that there was the potential of a threat from these hmm. from from these beings. Now, in that However, same, in that same hang on, in that same time frame, weren't there rumors of human abductions like cattle abductions with human mutilations? No, I don't know that. No, absolutely not. I, I do not I think know Linda that. has reported on those. Linda, I don't know. Linda We're talking Malton about Howe. that time frame, the fifties? Yeah, I don't. Yeah. We know there are cattle mutilations, but that's not – I think that's much later. That's interplanetary much later. war. I'm simply trying to say that it's not unusual for him to maybe make that statement because it was a possibility. But what is much more important than that is that the government knows a great deal about these things. They know a great deal about their comings and goings. They track them. They have bodies. And so – when the government says in 52 in the Robertson report, we don't see them as a threat. And when several other people in government over the years have come forward saying they're not a threat. And in all of that time, they haven't, as far as we know, blown anything up, shot any planes down, though there might have been some in the very earliest days because we were shooting at them. But overall, the record of ETs in terms of conducting violence is basically zero. Oh, wait, 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 Stephen, hang on. That's not true. 
Stephen, 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 calm down, Stephen. Calm, take a deep breath. Well, it irritates a lot of people. It doesn't make it true or untrue. So, Barbara, go ahead. Yeah, it's not true that there's no violence. If you believe, if you attribute the abductions and the really horrendous biological experimentation, that is violence for excellence. It is a violence of a sort. And the, no, it's the contact, not. It's violence. It's human contact. It's issue. human intervention against free will. That's violence. It is violence of a sort. Okay. Yeah, it's not violence by one military against an interplanetary alien uh, fleet. No, but it's violence. It's violence against real human beings. Um, It's violence of a type, and it needs to be considered. I don't know what you mean by of a type. Dick, if somebody slaps you on the hand with a ruler, that's violence. Does that mean you get a gun and go kill him and his whole family? Taking no. an anal probe up your ass is not slapping you on the hand, okay? I don't know. Violating. An anal, probe, an anal probe is not comfortable. Millions of Americans have things stuck up their ass every year, every day practically. And so, again, with their permission, context, it has to be viewed intellectually. No, it doesn't. It has to be viewed judgment. from a human perspective. Is it with free will choice or is it not? That's the dividing it's not line. free will choice in many cases. And so the, the abduction phenomena, which is something that I, I think we are all agreeing that it's real, right? Yeah. I, I mean, the, the contact issue is one of the reasons I do what I do. But the irony is I, I really can't. I can't really politically pursue that because it's actually a detriment to trying to get the political resolution. But in spite, but, but that, with that aside, I know about the contact phenomena. I, I know contactees. I know what goes on, some good, some bad. And I know that they're in the closet, and I know they're demeaned and ridiculed, and it's not good, and it's not fun. But, of course, as, as on the list of what governments do to people, eh, it's not the worst, but it's a problem. And I know that, in a sense, you could call that not appropriate. Uh, uh, and there, there may be – I think there's been some harm. There's definitely some examples of harm, okay? And – there, but there are also reasons why the ETs are doing this, which we don't know, at least at least in the general public, we don't know. The government knows they might, maybe not, but there's reasons for it. There's reasons why we do all the medical research and, 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 uh, and, 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 and DNA research that we do. So there's a certain, how would you say, gap between our ability to properly assess exactly to what the degree of response should be to that issue. Now, the government's position is there are no ETs, therefore there are no contactees, and therefore you need to shut up or you're crazy or get in the closet and don't say anything. And so the government's position on the contact phenomena is utterly, utterly abysmal. And one of the reasons I do what I do is that until we get the confirmation of the reality of these ETs, there is no chance in hell the contactees are going to get a proper airing, a proper in, uh, uh, investigation, and have a chance to have a better understanding of what's happening to them. And maybe disclosure might even end contact of that type, since it will be kind of harder to do and very inappropriate. I don't know. But is the contact event, as I know them, the basis for spending $500 billion on space lasers or creating a vast space force like it's the Starship Troopers? No. But it's what 
it's what government does. It's what the military intelligence complex does. Give me any reason and give me a trillion dollars, and I'll set up I'll set up stuff to kill anything anywhere. Right? We'll we'll defend ourselves against black hole. Just give me another fifty trillion. Well, no. Oh, we found out there's a scary the one only fifteen hundred light years away. So we have to maintain the proper perspective on the ET issue, which is very hard for people because they are all suffering. Unless they every every minute they've been alive, if they were born after nineteen forty-seven, uh, since forty-seven. They have lived under this truth embargo. And so people, smart, dumb, famous, rich, it doesn't matter. They, they don't have the ability to have a proper perspective, which is what the movement has been trying to do. Okay, let, me, know, let, me, let me back up here, all right, because we've been grappling with why did the embargo get put in place at the decision time when it could have gone one of two ways, either openness or top, top, top secret, okay? National security. Yeah, but that's, that's a, that doesn't mean anything. Hang on, hang on. Let me. Let, can I? Can, what was the reason? Well, let me tell you this. If, there's if the Russians a, didn't if, have if, nuclear weapons, Stephen, please. If there's an alien species abducting humanity at will all over the Earth, and there's not a damn thing the governments can do about it, governments can't come to their citizens and say. Our constitutional, you know, first order is to protect you. Sorry, we can't protect you. This is a reality. You just have to live with it. Governments fall under those conditions until they, someone comes forth and says, yes, we have a plan to somehow counteract this, which gets us back to MacArthur. If the reality, the underlying reality, even if it's only 20 cases out of millions of people, is that at random, in Arthur Clarke's perception, in any sufficiently advanced technology is yeah, yeah. indistinguishable from magic yeah. and cannot be confronted with our current limited knowledge of physics, then the reason for the cover-up is they could never admit we are defenseless. Again, uh, one, I don't think there's very little evidence that they knew anything at all about abductions in that period. Right. And That's why did, you need to go to Linda Moulton Howe's research. I am somewhat familiar, and right, but I don't want to get into that. All right. Yeah, but what I'm you want to is not view. reality, Stephen. It's your opinion. You don't have Everything to say a word. I say is my opinion. Same thing with you, Dick. I'm simply saying I do not think there was virtually any evidence for abductions during that period. But even if they were, I assure you. That the concern they had over what was in it was it obviously developing nuclear standoff with the Soviet Union that would eventually include communist China was a thousand times more concerning to them than the fact that there was these craft flying around and they couldn't do anything about it. A thousand times that more concerning. apples and oranges. I would say that's a completely fallacious way of reasoning, Stephen, because we're now saying that the reality of extraterrestrials will so supersede the small internecine warfare between humans on this planet, government, nation states, that we will – that was Gorbachev and Reagan's conversation – we would unite against the common enemy if we had a real threat of nuclear war that could be thwarted by admitting to a larger threat. 
Of course, the logic would have been unite against the bigger threat unless there was nothing anybody could do about the bigger threat. Well, again, Dick, you and I agree, disagree about so much, and it's fun and it's stimulating. I don't believe that. I don't even believe what Reagan said. I don't think even he believed it. Right? The by the time Reagan was Reagan, they knew enough about this time and know that they weren't a threat. However, right, the nuclear threat remains, and so if pointing out that boy, if we could just if we were if we had an extraterrestrial threat, wouldn't we all come together just to make a kumbaya point that why don't we just end these nuclear weapons? Well, what the hell, right? But it didn't go anywhere, and it hasn't been backed up since, right? They turn off our nuclear weapons. They don't blow them up. Okay, and so again, yeah, they, turn, they turn them off, and they also turned them on. In, in on a couple of occasions, they turned them on and scared the hell out of people, but they didn't let them launch. No. And so we we but it was not under our control. And remember, the first rule of government is you must control. Get the number of things that our government can't control is an endless list. It's one of the reasons we're in trouble right now is all the crap that the government can't control. The government is not what the QAnon world and the dark web make it out to be. Right? It has its strengths and it has its weaknesses. It has its pluses. It has its minuses. But as an all-controlling, infallible entity, my God, it's anything but. Right? That's why they keep getting overthrown by mobs. So they they knew that there was nothing they could do about the the the, the ET presence, and yes, that was a bit concerning. Okay. But there was no evidence that they were going to annihilate the United States. On the other hand, the Soviet Union was saying they were going to annihilate us on a regular basis. And so the Soviet threat and the nuclear arms race, which eventually reached 86,000 weapons, was the reason that no one could put forth a let's disclose argument within the military intelligence complex that was going to get any traction. And that changed when the, new, when the, when the Cold War ended in 91, and it started to change, and the door started to open again. The first opportunity was in 53, before the nuclear arms race was really underway, to go ahead and engage this issue publicly, bring everybody in on it, and let us all work together to see what to do with it. Then that door closed. The next opportunity was after the Cold War ended in 91. And there was an effort to do something in the Clinton, Clinton administration. It was blocked. And so it didn't happen. And so that took us on 30 more years, and now we're getting our third run at it. And this time, we're getting it right. This time, we're doing everything you're supposed to do. Barbara's asking an important question. Yeah. Who blocked it under Clinton and why? I'm sorry? Who blocked, Who blocked it? it under Clinton and why? He was basically blocked by virtually the Pentagon, uh, essentially when they realized that Rockefeller was serious about trying to get something going, get a report, get the files, and that Clinton was actually responding to it, even going so far as to ask John Podesta to reach out on this. Uh, they, said, they basically made the decision, no way. Uh, there were reasons for that, and, and the principal reason wasn't that, oh, my God, we can't tell the American people about the ET issue. The, the principal reason is they utterly hated Bill Clinton from one end of the Pentagon to another, from the Navy to the Air Force to the Army. They literally despised him. 
he was not supposed to be president. George H.W. Bush was supposed to be president. Well, Him being elected. To her surprise, he didn't get reelected. He didn't get reelected. So he, he, uh, so he's the wrong president. And so they were simply not going to cooperate. And so they wouldn't release any files. Well, they, they danced with him a little bit. They played the game, but nothing came out of it. Stephen Schiff made a move. They blocked him. All right. The biggest disgrace in terms of the government response to the Clinton possibilities, which would have been led by John Podesta, he could have been the disclosure president, gone down in history. I mean, it would have been an amazing thing. But boy, would a lot of people in the national security state have been really irritated. But uh, uh, the, the worst thing that happened was that a very fine person, a brilliant woman, Sheila Wignall, the first woman – uh, head of the service, armed service, head of the Air Force, agreed to and signed off on a $12 million totally bogus Roswell report designed to shut it down, right? In his second term, get this done. It's what we're talking about now going into 97. This was the tra- the uh, time compression and uh, crash dummies. Well, thing. that was the that was that was the, the the part of the press conference. But the the main report, which cost a fortune, millions of dollars, was signed off by Wignall. It was a complete loss. Uh, and that was that was the main bill. I think your mic dropped. It did drop. Hang on. Clinton was angry as hell over the fact that he was stonewalled and they treated him like he was a yard boy or Remember something. his famous speech from Belfast? Yeah. So he was mad. And so – but – so he's mad about that. So the Air Force spends millions of dollars on a bogus report. But they also went – they kept going after him. His enemies kept going after him, and they finally got him. And so between the um, the um, uh, Monica Lewinsky fiasco and the ability to stonewall him, Corso, Schiff, they got through the Clinton administration, which then got them into the Bush administration. And by and large, they were pretty sure they could contain it there, which they were able to do. And, and then it continues to snowball from there. But – through all of these efforts, all of this stuff that's going on, and they're, and they're doing their thing. They've got billions of dollars to work with, okay? A lot of resources, right? Plus supercomputers, the intelligence agencies. they got all this work. They're still losing ground because the public is still pressing and finding more stuff and doing the research and writing the books. They're still losing ground through all of that. But they managed to buy themselves 30 more years from 1992 – when Clinton, when he's elected, to 2022, okay? They got 30 more years, but that's it. They're not going to get any more. The only thing that's going to stop disclosure from happening is if Vladimir Putin, Vladimir, Vladimir Putin <laughs> uses tactical nukes in the Ukraine and the response doesn't go well. That's the only thing that's going to stop it. All right. Uh, the Republicans, if they take over the House and Senate, are going to hold the hearings themselves. Right? It's, it's a nonpartisan issue. They got no problem with that. They'll take the glory. They'll love it. Right? They'll get the glory. They'll be the non-disclosure party. The president, if it's a pre- Republican president, could end up being the disclosure president. Whatever. Okay. So it, it's insulated from the worst of this. But the situation in Ukraine is the biggest risk now to this, and of course everything else. We are at the top of the hour. My guests this morning are Stephen Bassett activist in the disclosure 
phenomenon for the last many decades. Barbara Honiger, member of the Reagan White House, I want to ask her what does uh, what does she know about what Reagan really thought when he had that conversation with Gorbachev? And we're going to be joined by Georgia Lambert, who is our resident metaphysician, because I want to raise this conversation now to the hyperdimensional level. And we will define that when we return. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. If you touch that dial now, you'll never forgive yourself. Midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nonlinearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to the After the Witching Hour in the Land of Enchantment edition of The Other Side of Midnight on this uh, now Sunday night, Monday morning. We're going to be joined very shortly by Georgia Lambert. Keith is uh, getting her on the line right now. And in the meantime, Barbara, did, uh, did the president ever say anything to you? Did the subject of what we're talking about tonight uh, ever come up in kind of open discussions there in the White House? Um, the, the music's a little bit loud in the background. Maybe it's going away now. Um, uh, not to my knowledge. Um, I, I would like to to put on the table here something that you wanted me to put on the table. It's my first item. I just want to remind you, and I, I think it's particularly important for Stephen to know this. Um, my first item is a document. It's called The Legal History of the Constitution Speech or Debate Clause. And it's by Mick Harrison, who is the litigation director of our Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, of which I'm not the co-chairman of the board. I'm the chairman of the board now, by the way. Um, I also wanted to make a correction earlier. I, I did not uh, guide uh, NASA policy from inside the White House, far from it. Um, what actually happened, and I will answer your question here in a moment, um, far from it, 
Um, Dr. Martin Anderson was Reagan's chief domestic policy advisor, the first one for about the first year and a half. And I was his senior aide and also White House policy analyst. And um, he was a, a very dedicated libertarian who didn't think that the federal government should, should be in charge of anything but the military, the police, and the courts. I mean, just completely zero out the entire domestic side of the government. So he considered NASA to be one of these agencies that should be zeroed out. And, uh, but of course, he couldn't do it. And um, so he didn't want to go to any of these meetings, like with Jess Moore, who was head of the space shuttle program. And so he would send me. And uh, so that's what I meant by that I held the NASA portfolio. I basically went to all of the meetings that the senior uh, domestic policy advisor was supposed to go to. Um, so Anyway, maybe we'll talk about that in another program. But what I want to put on the table here is this legal history of the Constitution's speech or debate clause is critically important document. And I want to go back to this, um, these articles um, that uh, were published in The Sun and The Daily Mail uh, about uh, a reported leak from inside um, the... Uh, presumably the Congress or maybe the um, the Office of Deputy Intelligence Director of the Pentagon. In any case, um, these two UK articles, uh, in one of them, it mentions, it says, here's the quote, one congressman, Representative Tim, uh, Tim Burchett of Tennessee, has questioned why the report's contents are being kept under wraps. In other words, why the... Um, why only those aspects of these uh, so-called unexplained phenomenon um, in even the classified report that came out on October 31st, um, why are the, the most important ones not even included in the report? And now this is important because this, it only takes one congressperson of either the House or the Senate, and here we have one man Tennessee Representative Tim Burchard, who I've done a little bit of research, it turns out, yes, he is on one of the um, the committees that will receive, that have received this classified report. He is on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. So the classified report on October 31st and future ones are going to the Armed Services Committee, the Appropriations Committees, the House Foreign Affairs Committee, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and the Intelligence Committee, so both the House and the Senate. Well, he is on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Representative Tim Burchard of Tennessee. So all Mr. Burchard needs to do at any point in time, if he's still on any of the committees that are receiving the classified reports, if there's something that he believes the public should know, because he is a sitting member of Congress, he can say anything he wants on the floor of the House. There is something called special orders. Um, he could be, uh, be recognized to make a comment about a bill and spill the beans about what he has read uh, in the classified report. And the importance of this legal document is, at any point, Steve, anyone like yourself, uh, would be able to take this document, for instance, to Representative Tim Burchard, just print it out and give him a copy, and let him know 
that thanks to former Senator, the late Senator Mike Gravel, who was the principal in the critical lawsuit that is discussed here, along with many other lawsuits that have gone even to the Supreme Court that have referenced U.S. versus Gravel. U.S. versus Gravel was the critical case that in which the Supreme Court of the United States, a very strong opinion in terms of the numbers of justices supporting it, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States has ruled that because of the speech and debate clause of the Constitution, that none of the other branches of government, in particular, no branch of the executive, which includes the Pentagon, it includes the White House, includes the intelligence agencies, absolutely none of them can touch a member of Congress and the Justice Department. Information in and in any aspect of their official duties. So this is a this is a legal document going into the entire legal history of U.S. versus Gravel and all of the other even stronger court opinions in the United States that have referenced U.S. versus Gravel. Believe it or not. There's a court case that references U.S. versus Gravel in this document. It's my item number one under Barbara's items tonight on our show page that stated, the court stated that even if a class, highly classified document were stolen and a member of Congress gets their hands on it, that member of Congress can read the whole friggin' thing into the congressional record on the floor of the House of the Senate, or in any or in any hearing room. Which is what happened like, with the Pentagon Papers. It's what happened with Mike Gravel. He started reading parts of the Pentagon Papers in a hearing room. Uh, not on the floor of not on the floor of the Senate. So we used we created Nick Harrison and myself uh, created this document um, because way back in uh, around the election of twenty sixteen the 28 pages of the House and Senate Joint Intelligence Committee report on the intelligence side of the, the alleged intelligence failures, they weren't failures at all, uh, of 9-11, um, that 28 pages, an entire, uh, an entire chapter, the final chapter of that first official congressional report, investigation report on 9-11, it had been kept uh, classified by both of the administrations of the W. Bush Cheney uh, administration and also both administrations of the Obama administration. And so what we did was Mick and I, Mick wrote this up. I did deep editing and research for it. And then Mick finalized it. He's our litigation director for the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. And he then, um, he said, Barb, take it to Mike Gravel, because Mike Gravel, uh, like Danny Sheehan, uh, was, was um, he's no longer with us, unfortunately, but he, he lived in Marina, California, just up the road from, from myself in the Monterey Peninsula of California. And so I took it to him, and I said, Mike, your country needs you. All you need to do is take this document, fly to D.C., and sit down with one or two of the most vocal members of the House and the Senate who have read the 28 pages in the classified reading room where you're not even allowed to take in paper and pencil. But they had it in their heads and remind them, give them this document and tell them to read it. And when they read it, 
they will know that there is no finger of the entire federal government that can touch them for for reading every for filling all of the beans of what they have read in the classified reading room. So I just want you to know that this document is a tool you can use, Stephen. That's it. Stephen? Yes, I'm familiar with There you are. Okay. Uh, the, uh, there are many, many things that uh, members of Congress can do. Uh, on the floor and, and so forth. And on a few very rare occasions, they do something a little out of the ordinary. Microvel is certainly one of those examples. But none of them have chosen to get up on the floor and be aggressive on this issue. Not yet. Let me, uh, let, uh, Stephen, we don't have a lot of time, and I want to bring Georgia on because she's been waiting very patiently. She's been listening to most of the show. She has some very interesting things to say. But let me say one thing, Barbara, to expand your point. If Stephen were to Google, or he may have the file already in, his, in the office there, every member, uh, Republican, Democrat, of each of these key committees who got the classified report on Monday – and simply send them your document with a, with a cover letter saying you can do this on the floor. And given Gravel's response and the Supreme Court decision, nothing can touch you. You can make this public if you so choose. That would be step one. Step well, two. Well, could be. Hang on. Uh, hang on. Probably be removed from the Intelligence Committee or whatever committee and, they were on. But that's their decision. Of it's, course. It's free will. Point. Yeah, they already know that. They're always thinking point. of that. The, the, the next step is for their constituents, if any con listeners in the audience know their congressional member, uh, House member, Senate you know, member of these key committees, and they were to do the same thing, you know, download the document, send it to them an email, send them a cover letter saying this is the precedent, this is how you're covered – you know, sometimes people don't think of things that are so obvious and simple because congressmen these days are not as plugged in as congressional people used to be in days gone by. Staff right. does okay. most exactly. of any 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 listener who uh, just go to House.gov or Senate.gov and click on the. These are the committees that have received all of these classified reports, the first one on October 31st and going forward, Armed Services of both House and Senate, Armed Services, Appropriations, Foreign Affairs in the House, Foreign Relations in the Senate, and the Intelligence Committees of the House and the Senate. So you just go to Senate.gov and House.gov, click uh, in the horizontal menu close to the top on committees, and see if you're a member of Congress or Senate two senators, member of Congress, three people, are on any of those committees. And this this document is a tool you can use. I understand, Stephen, that you know that this tool, that U.S. versus Gravel exists, and that every once in a while somebody has courage like Mike Gravel. But this tool made all the difference when Mike Gravel personally took it and sat down with a someone like Representative Tim Burchett of Tennessee, put it in front of him and said, you are untouchable. If it comes to the point where there's something you are willing to put your career in Congress on the line for, use this tool. 
and say what you have read in the classified reading room in the House or the Senate, in the floor, any committee room, any committee hearing, etc., then you are completely protected. And when Mike Gravel did that with this very document and took it and sat down with Massey, uh, I think that's Senator Massey, maybe Representative Massey with Massey and um, um, uh, Rand Paul, uh, sat down with them. Um, it wasn't long before Congress, the House and Senate Intelligence Committees, declassified the 28 pages. And once it was declassified, there were 17 references to Bandar Bush, Prince Bandar in it, with a whole Saudi connection. And within a couple of weeks, within a couple of weeks, the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act was passed, which is a, a revolution in the foundation of international law. So this is this is an extremely powerful tool when it really matters. And I'm just saying that since most congressional members these days are not familiar the way other members used to be, the public, their constituents can do the public, the you know, American citizenry, the American electorate right before this election, a tremendous service by bringing this to their attention as a tool because there could be, and all there needs to be is one courageous person on one of those committees, and everything can change. And I'll give you one last thought on this, and then it will exactly. go. Exactly. It only takes one with courage. When the, when the hearing was first her, uh, held last, what, Jan, uh, uh, June, Stephen Schiff, who was the congressional member from California, who was the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, was not only a witness in the hearing – he actually spoke during the hearing. He was there showing his presence, his interest in the subject. He is chairman of the House committee. It could even be Schiff himself who reads this document into the record to close the loop. Nothing is written. Try it. Do well, you it. won't have to read it into the record, but because you can only read it in a classified reading room, even the members of these committees. But they do get it in their head. And they can say on the floor of the House or the Senate or in any House or Senate hearing what they read. Yeah. Okay, moving on. Georgia, are you with us? I am. Good evening. <laughs> Hi, Georgia. Hi, guys. Okay, moving the conversation from 3D to 4D and above, what are your thoughts to what you've heard us discuss hopefully amicably, so far? Well, I actually have a couple of points, but before I get to those, uh, just uh, throwing out stuff here. You were talking about MacArthur. Um, my father was on MacArthur's uh, personal staff ah. uh, all the way through the Pacific, uh, the Philippines, and the occupation of Japan after, after the war. Ooh. After that, he got transferred to uh, McCoy, uh, General McCoy's staff, but um, it was interesting hearing about MacArthur again. Fascinating. The the, um, the the points that that I'd like to make is: Do you remember, Richard? We've talked in previous evenings about perception and that if something is not within your realm of reality, you can't see it. Yep. Um, I think it's vitally important as this 
ball gets rolling, that whatever committees are convened include those that have expertise in spiritual, uh, philosophical, and paranormal activity. Because if that area is not included, there's going to be a lot of stuff that won't be seen because this is not in people's reality that are just looking at advanced technology. And we might be looking at situations that are far more than just better technology. We're talking about a different kind of consciousness, perhaps a higher, more advanced evolutionary uh, consciousness. And unless that element is included, uh, it may not be taken into consideration. And I'll give you an example. Um, when we think about the UFOs, um, most people are thinking of spacecraft. But it can be a variety of different things, and that is going to have to be sorted out. Obviously, this, just a, a few examples would be, yes, military technology that they want to keep secret. That could be one. Another thing could be natural life, living high in our atmosphere. You know, uh, Trevor Constable wrote a book called The Cosmic Pulse of Life, where he went to the desert and with, this was before digi digital cameras, with, um, with film, uh, it photographed huge amoeba-like stuff in the atmosphere that could show up on camera but couldn't be seen by human eyes. Uh, that's a possibility. What was the name of the book, Georgia? Cosmic Pulse of Life oh. by Trevor Constable. And he tells you what kind of cameras he used and what kind of film, and you can go do it yourself. Uh, amazing uh, uh, photographs. These huge, ovoid, amoeba-like creatures that are not quite physical but almost that live high in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Another uh, example could be, yes, bigger family that's out there, more than one with more than one agenda. Um, this gets into the possibility of multidimensional. And as Barbara, you were saying earlier, time travel. Remember that what they found at Kecksburg may have been the Glock from the Nazis that went through time. That's a really interesting thing to think about. Uh, in the Rendlesham Forest uh, example, one of the guys got downloaded a whole book full of binary code before we even knew what computer code was. So the time travel thing could, could fit in there. Uh, another thing could be what the Hindus call the Deva Kingdom, which is the natural uh, co-kingdom with humanity, the natural little, uh, on the low side, the, the nature spirits and fairies and things like that, and the higher end would be the angelic presence. You know, if you go back and read old Irish stories about being taken away by the fairies, the fairies were always kind of dangerous and they were little and they had big dark eyes and they were silver and there was time uh, distortion mm -hmm. and there was, there was even a, a, a hybrid 
uh, element with the idea of changelings. I mean, where, how does that fit in to the to the whole thing? And then you've got humanity's ability to manifest their subconscious. Remember, Forbidden Planet and the monsters of the id. <laughs> So there can be a variety of different things that are all lumped under this one phenomena. It's not necessarily just technology. And in right. That's so, why I found it so important that the um, FOIA document tranche dump uh, includes um, uh, a category for paranormal experiences and um, phenomenon. And that's why that that element has to be on whatever committees are doing the investigation because it may not be what they think it is. Well, I guarantee you it's not what they think it is. And, and there's a lot of testimony to that effect. And I really, I kind of recoil when I hear the word paranormal because para means kind of outside of and whatever we're talking about is normal. It's just not part of our science and our knowledge base publicly right. yet. So right. I would prefer the term hyperdimensional because it is multidimensional, and that can be proven in a physics lab as some of the folks that I talk about, like uh, uh, you know De Palma and others, uh, have proven for decades. There's a new book. Um, Stephen, you're familiar with Raymond Fowler, right? Yes. The New, the New England researcher into UFOlogy for decades and decades. He wrote a famous series on Betty Andreessen and her encounters with extraterrestrials. The first yeah, was sure. called, well, I'm, I'm, I'm telling the audience because they don't know. So the Andreessen affair, which is really interesting because in it, Betty Andreessen, when she is kind of debriefed under hypnosis, she talks about structures on Mars including pyramids with statues on top, which we now have photographs of from NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, the Tetrahedral Pyramid in Kandor Kazma, which Andrew Curry, our own artist, has done stunning uh, uh, sketches of, showing a statue on a pillar on top of a Martian pyramid. So Andreessen and by metonymy Fowler, need to be paid attention to. Fowler's got a new book. It's called UFOs, The Ultimate Abduction. And I want to read uh, a kind of a part of the blurb for it because I'm going to try. I've already sent him an email. I have no response yet, but I'm going to try to get Raymond Fowler on in the next few weeks to, to talk about this. He says, this book addresses and answers a rampant question within ufology, whether UFOs are physical or psychic in nature. In my early days as a UFO investigator, I would throw UFO reports that contained paranormal phenomenon in the proverbial wastebasket. My position etched in the halls of Congress was that UFOs were machine-like physical craft from another star system. However, as time went by, I watched in dismay as several respected UFO researchers moved from a physical to a psychic interpretation of the UFO phenomenon. Little did I know that my own view would also slowly but surely be honed to accommodate ever deeper levels of the psychic components triggered by the UFO experience, and then the blurb goes on to describe what's in the book, and uh, he calls it the ultimate abduction. 
Because, yes, I am coming to believe, based on my own completely independent um, hyperdimensional research, that there is a stunning hyperdimensional slash psychic slash paranormal component to what most have interpreted up until now as mainly a 3D physical other star system, nuts and bolts, spacecraft, or flesh and blood alien phenomenology. And not only that, not only that, Richard, but, you know, this idea that that um, just because they perhaps have advanced technology doesn't necessarily mean they're more advanced in consciousness. I mean, the Spanish conquistadors had guns and horses, and they weren't more advanced spiritually than the natives they slaughtered. But given that these advanced technologies have got to now encompass higher dimensional realms, and that opens the floodgates to consciousness, yeah. which I think is another reason why the officialdom on, in, in, in this realm, in this reality, in this 3D reality, put the lowered the curtain drastically 70 years ago because, for God's sake, we can't have higher-level consciousness among citizens. What would that bring us? You know, cats and dogs living together, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's a whole bunch of reasons for the embargo, the cover-up, not the least of which is it opens the door as do these technologies to a realm of infinity, including consciousness and who are we really itself. Well, that's really the question you asked at the beginning of the show, why should we care? It's about who we are. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. And we are at the bottom of the hour. Oh, what elegant timing. So everybody, everyone's going to kind of hold it there. We've got one last half hour to go. When we come back, I will give everybody a phone number if you want to join the conversation, if you want to be part of this very interesting prelude to what is going to happen in law, in consciousness, in public discourse, in media coverage, in all of that. When we return, you're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. One half hour to go. Anytime on any device. 
Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side is midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this now Monday morning here in the land of enchantment in the desert. My guest this morning, Steve Bassett, Barbara Honiger, and Georgia Lambert uh, will be back with us momentarily. I want to ask a question. If anybody wants out there to join the conversation, if you have an observation, an insight, a leak, <laughs> or just a question, uh, by all means, 917 917- 889-8802-917-889-8802. And we do have someone on the line from area code 727. Let me do this and you will be on the air. Welcome to the other side of midnight. Yeah, this is Stephen in Clearwater. I was wondering, how do you think the Catholic Church and other religions, for that matter, are going to try to integrate their belief system into this new, newfound reality? Oh, what a super question, Stephen. Hey, who wants well, to take that first? The Catholic Church. The Catholic Church has already opened that door. Exactly. They they said that uh, if there are aliens out there, that uh, they'd just be happy to baptize them too. That's right. <laughs> well, wasn't it? I'm forgetting who was it. The guy in charge of the Vatican Observatory. A when I found this out years ago, I was really intrigued. Why does the Vatican have an observatory? And then I found out that the Pope actually has his own meteorite collection, which gets even more interesting and weirder. But what I found out is part of the spate of discussions and and, uh, papal, you know, pronouncements coming out of the Vatican a few years ago, there was one statement, guys, if you remember this, where he talked about the baptism of extraterrestrials as part of the human family. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. Well, what does that tell us? It tells us that some ETs have got to be humans. They simply live in another place of real estate. Yeah, Danny Danny Sheehan um, told me, (laughs) and of course, you know, Stephen and I are very close to Danny. Um, uh, Danny Sheehan and his partner and wife, Sarah Nelson, and I went to Rome. And um, this was a few years ago on a 9-11 truth mission uh, to meet with a former Chief Justice of the of Italy's Supreme Court. Um, but while we were there, Danny <coughs> went to uh, Castle Gandolfo, which, as I recall, is where the observatory is, and he met with him. That's where and, it is, yep. 
and Danny has um, Danny has uh, made uh, great progress on an agreement with him um, to um, be a major co-founder of an institute uh, here in California um, that I'm sure Stephen knows about um, to tackle these very questions. And of course, the Hindus, that's not a problem because they have records of Vimanas going back throughout their history. So it's not going to be any big whoop to them. Right. And then you've got Ezekiel's wheel in the Bible and Jacques Delay's book. Um, exactly. you know, I mean, this, this has been going on for how long has this been going on? You know, this song. <laughs> A very long time. It's a lot more than 70 plus years. Yeah, a lot more. Anything else, Stephen? Well, you know, if you if you look at the saints and some of the things they were able to do and a lot of the things, um, you know, uh, phenomena that they were able to do that most people, it just it just reeks a hyperdimensional physics. And and I think. I think the church even may reconsider exactly what the nature of Jesus himself was. And I don't know. I think there's wonderful changes coming. I don't think they're going to hurt the church. I think they're going to help the church. So I think so too. And David Ray Griffin, who is the Dean of the 9-11 Truth Movement, he is a, um, a, a believing Christian, a very uh, great philosopher, religious philosopher, as well as scientific philosopher and truth teller. Um, he has just published um, a very important book, um, Revisiting the Nature of Jesus from This Perspective. Hmm. Yep, good times are coming. Mm-hmm. I think that the people that will have the most difficulty in terms of religious acceptance are the fundamental Christians. Mm-hmm. You mean the uh, so-called evangelicals? Yeah, I think they'll have the most difficulty with all of this. I mean, why would they why would they have difficulty because there is a passage Jesus says very clearly in in the New Testament in my father's house God. There are many mansions. There are many mansions. I mean, it's right there. Sounds to me like he was an astrologer. <laughs> yes, but you know, you know the old saying, there's nothing wrong with the old saying is there's nothing wrong with Christianity. It just hasn't really been tried yet. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen Bassett, you're being very quiet. Yes. I said you're being very quiet. He has a right to be quiet. Okay. This, realm- this is, I think this is an area, Richard which, as uh, Stephen said before, here on this program tonight, um, it doesn't help with the political goals that he has in Washington, D.C., going, opening the door too wide. Um, but for those of us who are truth seekers par excellence, you know, um, that we're not trying to achieve something. But see, political. this is part of the problem, guys, and I hope, Stephen, you'll agree with me. When people are too political, the the voters, the constituents, they turn off. The reason they don't trust government is what they've heard all their life is politicians telling them what they think they want to hear as opposed to the truth. I'm not a politician, and I don't 
No, but uh, Barbara's saying that because you have to talk to them, you can't tell the truth. At least that's what I gathered from her statement. Uh, it's, uh, let's put it this way. Uh, a lot of what gets done in, in government, diplomacy, and everything involves staying between the lines with respect to language uh, and the areas that you go. It's, it's, a, it's a, you know, in other words, they, they, most countries are not a giant hippie commune. <laughs> they they yeah. are very structured, and there's lots of rules and regs and things you have to to follow. Uh, and uh, some people don't like that; some do. Uh, but it is the fact. If you want to get something done, there are certain ways to go about it. That and that's the area that I deal in. Uh, I'm not a utopian. Uh, I am based in terms of religion. I'm an acolyte in the church of Bill Maher. Uh, <laughs> I just, but I, I respect all these things. I mean, I, religion has been around a long time for a reason. It's very, very uh, useful. Uh, people need it and it's adaptable. I, I assure you the least of my concerns is how, what is going to happen to religion once the extraterrestrial presence is yeah, me too. announced. It's just not going to be a big deal. Yeah, you, you have to set your own boundaries and have red lines in Washington, D.C. Um, your language is extremely important, especially when you're dealing with congressional committees. All these people have huge egos, and they're trying to move up some kind of hierarchical ladder. And um, the higher you go on it, the stricter these rules are. Yeah, true. Let me, let me raise another possibility. We were talking before about the perception of the – uh, national security agencies uh, because of, you know, potential threats to the nation, the planet, you know, MacArthur's very curious statements. And one needs to read the whole speech there at West Point to see the context. I want to I want to ask another question that's kind of in your ballpark, uh, Georgia. If ultimately reality is a contest between good and evil which we find in all religions, all uh, theological discussions and questions and, and metaphysical propositions that there are choices. Is it not potentially possible that if we're dealing with a, with a higher level version of Arthur's you know, third law, any sufficiently advanced technology, if consciousness at a hyperdimensional level is a technology, and if it can be used both to benefit people, to benefit consciousness, or to attack it, to try to subsume it, to take it over, to invade it, is it not possible that there could be hyperdimensional threats if unrecognized by naive three-dimensionally bound humans which transcend physical violence and bombs and, you know, the usual clutter of war, but operate at a much more insidious and higher level that if you're unaware that you're dealing with that kind of enemy threat, you're kind of totally defenseless against. Well, that's true. And, and as you say, any technology can be used for good or ill. I mean, you can, you know, build a house with a hammer or hit someone over the head with it. Uh, this is why discrimination is going to be uh, a priority as we move into the reality of this higher life, because 
it may be many, many folks out there, many different siblings, if you like, Richard, um, that have different agendas. And we'll have to sort that all out. And I think that uh, also there is the fact of our choice. If there is some kind of prime directive, the choices that we make may determine who we play with in the bigger family. Hmm. Uh, yeah, you know, Richard, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, um, I the word prime prime directive. I called into the show last night, and I just want to I wanted to make one other comment last night. Um, but you you asked the question, and it's relevant here as well. And that is, <clears throat> why has there been this massive lying by NASA? And we don't need to go into, you know, the, the show last night in any detail. You might want to give people a summary here when I make my comment. But um, you've asked why this massive lying campaign. And um, it occurred, this is something that occurred to me. Um, if, in fact, there is evidence, and you that's been your career, um, if there is evidence of life on Mars, for instance. Um, Either former or current. Former and or current, either way. Um, you know, the, the Zionists who created the State of Israel, they had a slogan. And their slogan was, um, their slogan was, a people without a land for a land without a people. And they put forward this myth that there wasn't anybody in Palestine. Um, and therefore, that it was okay to take over the land. Well, this this concept, if I recall from talking to Danny Sheehan, there's actually there's actually a law to that effect in the Vatican. Uh, whether I'm right about that, there's a what in the Vatican? That there, you know, there's there's canonical law. There's there's the law of the Church. Okay. And for you know hundreds and hundreds of years, the Church was the ruling power. Right. In in Europe, anyway, and you know. No, like 2,000 um, years, give or take. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, and whether or not it's relevant, it occurred to me that the, the, the moneyed powers, the governments of the world, especially the powerful ones like the United States, more and more China, a little bit less Russia, the European Union, um, they see dollar signs in space. They want to mine space. Uh, they want to mine it uh, in the, for the private sector for massive profits, which of course goes against the the Outer Space Treaty. Um, but that's what they want it for. But if there's any evidence that Mars, for instance, which is the prime next goal, um, if there's any evidence that there really has been life on Mars or is life on Mars. Um, there may be some kind of prime directive that prevents them from doing what they want to do. Now, when you and say so, prime directive, do you mean in human law or in a larger frame? Well, 
Probably both. And the, the reason I mentioned both is because of the critical uh, Albert Einstein Oppenheimer letter that we really do need, you really do need to talk about with Robert Morningstar on a program uh, in more detail. You did that a few weeks ago. Um, but that's a critical, critical letter um, in which basically um, uh, that Oppenheimer and Einstein, I believe it was to Truman, in any case, it was to the President of the United States, and they were basically saying, well, we, and I think by we, they meant the Jewish people um, or the Jewish rabbis, but we have had the covenant with them, um, and now um, what we need is a new covenant with them. And they were talking about uh, after, as I recall, after Roswell. Um, so it just seems to me that one of the main reasons that our government, that, the, that our government in particular, um, and our space agencies have been covering up the truth about Mars, for instance, is because if there's any evidence of life, they can't do what they want to do in terms of their private profit motives. Yeah, but frankly, comparing mining asteroids to going to Mars to mine or to exploit or whatever is is exploit. They, they they are totally two separate not just two separate baskets two separate kitchens. I'm not talking about asteroids. I'm talking about Mars. No, I'm talking Mars too. It it makes no sense. It makes zero economic sense unless you really have control of gravity. If you control gravity, which of course is a hyperdimensional physics technology, that opens up the doorway to exploiting anything. But then you don't have to mine anything because, as my departed friend Gene Mayloff proved in New England when he was uh, editor of Infinite Energy magazine and had access to experiments being conducted all over the world that don't make the mainstream you know, journals, mm -hmm. if you have access to this physics and technology, you literally can manufacture matter out of nothing, out of the vacuum, out mm -hmm. of the ether, which means you never have to mine a physical object again. You simply arrange the, the, the ultimate alchemy. Yeah, but the, see that ultimate alchemy, and we didn't get to what I wanted to do tonight in part, which means may, we may have to do a part three of this. I want to talk about all the technologies and all the incredible environmental positive impacts on Earth and on civilization and on societies, both rich and poor, that disclosure will bring about as an inevitable consequence of this stuff coming out. And I want to go through how, what kind of process we might envision for that actually taking place. And the more I'm talking, the more I'm thinking maybe we should do this next Saturday night, but I'm not going to make a firm decision. I have to see what's going on with Artemis. So, but yeah, if in fact these technologies and this physics is real, which it is, then the current 19th century basis of, you know, ruthless dog eat dog capitalism and rich, super rich oligarchs and dirt poor other people becomes meaningless. And if you abolish the idea that resources are one of the pillars of wealth and you insert energy, which is unlimited, 
energy which is non-polluting, resources which don't have to be raping the land, you change the whole basis of economics and human dynamics. And frankly, the only thing left is ego and power and control of one group by another group as the fundamental human flaw, which has prevented all of this, I think, from being made public. That idea was uh, uh, exploited in an old Twilight Zone, if you remember, the robbers that uh, robbed the bank of bars of gold. and Oh, yes, 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 yes. And then when they, they put themselves into a, a suspended animation, and when they came out with all this gold, it wasn't worth anything because we learned how to make it. Yes. <laughs> what an allegory. What, what a genius Rod Serling was. What a genius. Well, regardless of whether this technology is finally brought under control and we have the ultimate alchemy and we don't have to mine Mars or the moon or whatever or asteroids, I just want to place on the table the possibility that there's some kind of legal directive um, that that is the is one of the reasons, one of the primary reasons that there has been a cover up of the evidence of previous life on Mars. And I would agree with that. Now, let me let me open the door a little further. Part of it I think has to do with if if way back when Viking took that original picture and it showed that gorgeous Arizona blue sky and a very inviting desert that looks so earth-like and like come 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 and that had been pursued once we get to mars and mass and find out that our our origin our genesis our transition to earth was from mars that the martians were us and that extraordinary now hidden heritage which includes connection with even higher sources of knowledge and wisdom and information and yes power the current holders of power the current you know masters of <clears throat> the subservience of earth will go away it's not in their interest to have this truth come out because then they lose control and i think far more than the rubric of national security and you know malevolent aliens and all that that the idea of losing control has been what's modulated the cover-up of both these realms for at least the last 70-plus years. Right. They haven't been in control all along. That's the big secret. Or they've been in control by permission of someone upstairs. Remember Charles Fort, we are property. And as overseers, they will be eliminated if we get rid of the middlemen and deal directly with whoever is really out there running the show. Mm -hmm. You know, in the, in the new physics, there's uh, an idea that anytime we make decisions or wield the will, um, we have not just one choice to follow, but it bifurcates time and you have multi-dimensional choices all being worked out. Um, I think that's why we are at a point right now that is so vital in terms of the choices that we make, because the choices that we make are going to determine a lot of how this unfolds. 
I'm so glad you said that because, Barbara, I'm going to get right to you because I know what you're thinking. Two days from now, we have this incredibly important, crucial, I think most important of our lifetime election. Talk about choice and this election and the paths it could set us upon that we cannot return from. Well, I, I hope that Georgia will bring attention again to her item um, in a moment. But I, uh, while you were, honey, you should just ask that question. I just happened to pop open uh, today's Washington Post, and the title is A Republican Winter May Be Coming for Ukraine. And Marjorie Taylor Greene, representative of Georgia, just declared in a stump speech Thursday in Iowa, quote, under a Republican Congress, not another penny will go to Ukraine. So there would there would be tremendous repercussions depending upon uh, the outcome of the election. And I hope that, Georgia, if you could tell us about your your item, which is so important. Well, the, the choices that we're making in the next couple of days here uh, are not just physical choices via our vote. They're also choices in thought. And we know that thought affects the torsion field and causes directions. And to the, um, the day of the election is also the day of the full moon when there are massive meditations going on all around the world. Uh, it just happened to coincide. And uh, regardless of what your religion or non-religion is, um, in my show notes, there's a little technique, um, if you don't have your own, uh, to invoke the soul of this nation and the truth without anybody trying to say what that truth is um, because we don't know we don't know all of the factors that are involved but if we get to our highest and best place whatever that is and make our choice for, from that place in for the long term rather than the short term I think things will come out all right and, and that's what your item is if people would read it right mm -hmm. it's just one page Mm -hmm. Isn't there an interesting background to this? Didn't didn't the um, um, British secret and and sacred societies institute something like this through the BBC, a minute of intention or something during World War II? Yes, it was called the Silent Minute, and it was uh, proposed by a, a, a British mystic who was also a soldier. Uh, named Wellesley Tudorpole, who was a friend of Churchill. And all over the country at 9 o'clock, when Big Ben struck, everybody held a silent minute, each of, with their own lineage, their own religion, their own techniques. But together, that united thought um, helped turn the tide. Does it matter when we do this? There are a lot of people that are going to be meditating at the exact time of the full moon, but um, uh, since our elections are that day, uh, I would say tomorrow tomorrow evening would be a really good time to focus. Well, remember, our experiments show that this is not a point in time; it's a window. Yeah, you know, it's kind of it's a gathering of the sheaves, so it funnels down to a point 
even if you're not right on the point when you do your because choice is not time limited it's beyond time generally the full moon periods for meditation are uh three days the the day of the day before and the day after mm-hmm. okay hey guys thank you so much to Stephen bassett and georgia lambert and barbara honiger we will do this again maybe next weekend maybe not we'll we'll let you know In the meantime, yes, tomorrow and the next day, you've got two more days to vote. Your vote this time is not just a vote for 3D reality. I think it's a vote for something much, much bigger. Make it a good one. So until next weekend, same time, same bad channel, remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone.